0: This hearing, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Secretary Blinken, welcome back to the committee, of which you have a long history with, so we appreciate you being with us again. If we're going to address the enormous scale of the global challenges we face in the 21st century, we need a well-resourced State Department with the most appropriate personnel and tools to promote American foreign policy. From the horrific Russian invasion of Ukraine to increasing violence in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo and a tenuous peace agreement in Ethiopia, to multiple failed states and active civil wars in the Middle East and North Africa, to the migration crisis caused by dictatorships, waves of criminal violence in Mexico and Central America, and the tragedy in Haiti, to food insecurity, severe natural disasters, and extreme heat exacerbated by the climate crisis. As well as the continuing issues related to the pandemic. So, we want to hear from you, Mr. Secretary, on how you plan to ensure that the Department is resourced and staffed to project American foreign policy, including seriously uh, countering the growing threat from China, for which I think you'll feel today and I'm sure in your other engagements a strong bipartisan, I think bicameral view, single biggest geostrategic challenge the United States faces. China has made major investments in diplomacy, and its diplomats are outrunning ours not because they're better, but because there are more of them in more places in the world, with more embassies and a seemingly limitless checkbook. We cannot be on the sidelines and mired down in bureaucratic processes. We need ambitious and consistent resourcing. As you know, Senator Rich and I are working to put together a bill to put us on a stronger path to compete with China globally. This will include resources and staffing, strengthen economic tools, expanding our engagement with Latin America, the Middle East, and Africa, where there is currently a 40% vacancy rate at key American posts. Bolstering our diplomatic and economic tools to compete with China is the key to avoiding a military confrontation, while also ensuring we are ready to prevail in a conflict if it be necessary. As we've seen with Russia and Ukraine, one dictator's warped vision of the world is all it takes to unleash a brutal modern war. Our unity of purpose with our democratic allies and partners against Putin's illegal war is critical and goes far beyond Ukraine's borders. When we lead with diplomatic, military, and economic support, others follow. Our continuing support for Ukraine is not just about defeating Russia or to help Ukraine's freedom, which in and of itself are worthy goals. It's important that we send a message to others who would upend the rules-based international order. You cannot by force take another country's territory. The U.S. needs to use all our tools more effectively to do that, which brings me to a third priority area we'd like to see the department address, which is security assistance. Unfortunately, for years, the Pentagon has encroached, me, encroached upon the State Department's vital and statutory role in security assistance, which is a critical tool of foreign policy, which we've seen most recently leveraged in Ukraine. This has increasingly untethered our assistance from human rights and American values, which I believe damage our national security interests. And it has led to policies that focus on short-term tactical military assistance, like we've seen with Azerbaijan blocking Armenians in nagorno Karabakh. So while I'll continue working to solidify the State Department's role, in the provision of all security assistance and sales and seek to claw that back where it rightfully belongs and statutorily belongs. The department has also worked to make sure we can fulfill our security assistance commitments to our partners while setting the stage to compete with and deter bad actors like China, Russia, and Iran. We must reorient American foreign policy to be rooted in supporting democracy and human rights, which serve our long-term interests. Our foreign policy needs to help activists, environmental defenders, political prisoners on the front lines of confronting autocrats. We need to be able to isolate and weaken those who undertake coups in countries like Chad, Sudan, Mali, and Guinea. We have to do more to protect women, girls, and young boys who are the targets of sexual violence in conflict zones. And finally, I want to reiterate the importance of building on the last two years of bipartisan work to resuscitate the State Department authorization process after a long hiatus. I think this speaks volumes about how deeply the committee values the department's work and personnel. It's critical that we modernize our diplomatic core so it better represents our nation's diverse backgrounds, views, and talents, and it gives them the tools they need to be successful. So we've got our work cut out for us, Mr. Secretary, and we want to thank you for being a constructive partner Uh, in this effort. We appreciate the constant dialogue between uh, our committee, yourself, and the department, and we look forward to discussing President Biden's budget request in detail uh, with you. With that, let me turn to the ranking member, Senator Rick. Well,
1: thank you, Mr. Chairman, and and Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for always being willing to uh, take uh, our calls when uh, we have important issues to discuss. Uh, I sincerely appreciate that, and although we don't always agree, as you know, It's good to talk and see if we can't find middle ground to get to uh, what usually is a common interest and common objective, and I I sincerely appreciate that. These days, there's no shortage of complex issues in foreign relations, including Russia's unprovoked war on Ukraine to China's ongoing attempts to coerce and dominate nations across the globe. The American people need a State Department that is fully capable of advancing interests and values of all Americans, and this will only increase in the future as challenges China becomes a greater and greater challenge for us. Now, we should all remember that that is the first challenge that we have, even though we have uh, other things going on, like the Ukraine war, which are are very important to us, but we can do more than one thing at a time. China is still the challenge of the century. The department needs to be efficient and effective with taxpayer dollars and use the authorities provided by Congress. For example, my Global Health Security Act signed into law light last year, provided state with substantial new authorities. The bill created a coordinator for global health security at the department with the power to reduce redundancy, eliminate waste, and ensure unity of effort. Remarkably, the department provided zero funding for the coordinator. Um, I hope you're going to talk about this a little bit today. I suspect you are since you and I have talked about it at uh, some length previously. Uh, we, also, uh, enact, uh, we also enacted my Secure Embassy Construction and Counterterrorism Act, which allows our diplomats more freedom to leave the embassy and do their job while dramatically reducing the costs of embassies. The authorities provided uh, in SICA should enhance our presence in places like the Pacific Islands, where we are directly competing with Chinese government for, government for influence. Uh, Secretary Blinken, I hope to hear how the Department is usili- utilizing these authorities in implementing these laws, because I remain concerned. On Russia and its brutal war, I have visited Kyiv and seen firsthand the destruction and uh, resilience of the Ukrainian people, as well as the work the State Department personnel are doing to advance our security. There is clearly more that needs to be done, though. The administration should stop its dithering and follow the lead of allies like Poland and send the F-16s. I don't want to see this administration uh, push for a ceasefire in December because not enough is being provided now. It's important that the help be provided now. Also, while I have consistently advocated for giving Ukraine more of the systems it needs to win, I've also been clear that we must conduct rigorous oversight to ensure that our aid is effective as well as transport Uh, transparent and accountable to the American taxpayer. I've had direct conversations with President Zelensky uh, about this and he knows that we're serious about this. We should increase embassy staffing and enable our diplomats to get out and conduct more oversight of the assistance dollars. Uh, More personnel are needed for uh, end use monitoring of critical weapon system. And And Washington needs to stop telling our team in Ukraine when and where they can go to monitor this. There are currently 64, 64 ongoing or planned audits and reports on U.S. assistance in Ukraine, and so far there has been zero evidence of illicit weapons transfer or misuse of taxpayer dollars. Turning to the Indo Pacific, I have long said we need better resourcing. I welcome the Department's request for increased funding. However, I remain concerned this money will be directed towards promoting the Democrat Party's progressive priorities rather than actually countering China which is the primary objective. The Biden administration must tell Congress what all this money is for. Right now, without further details, it looks like slush funds for the administration's desires. On Taiwan, I'm troubled, but not surprised that the budget uh, request lacks robust security assistance for Taiwan. Uh, Relegating Taiwan to a sliver of $16 million in total FMF funding is unserious and, frankly, offensive, given the threats emanating from China. R- related, uh, relatedly in the Middle East, it's clear that the administration is failing to compete with China. I just returned from the region and the administration's policies across the board uh, have uh, created great, great concerns for our partners there. Our partners continually p- point to an Iran policy that undermines their security and Afghanistan withdrawal that makes them doubt American commitment This administration's slow embrace of the Abraham Accords and increasingly restrictive arms sales, all evidence, they argue, of a retreating America. It's difficult to persuade the mother lies in, in the face of the evidence. The recent deal between Saudi Arabia, China, and Iran proves the U.S. is sitting on the sidelines. Instead of fixing its approach, the administration blames our partners for this outcome. After all, great power competition is global. As a nation, that has fought in both Europe and Pacific, We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Focusing on China, it's uh, important. I've said for a long, long time, that doesn't mean we turn our backs on the Middle East. Finally, as you've just returned from Africa, I'd like to hear how you plan to deliver on U.S. uh, commitments on the continent, including those made at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. We can only deliver if we have sufficient personnel and tools to conduct our diplomacy and development effectively. Many issues. I have no doubt you're up to the task of explaining them all to us in detail. Thank you, uh, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh,
0: thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, Mr. Secretary, we'll turn to you. Uh, your full statement will be included in the record without objection. And uh, you've got a lot to cover, so I, I don't <laughs> want to ultimately uh, constrain uh, your time. But we do want to have a conversation with you, so uh, please, uh, you can commence.
2: Well, thank you very much, uh, Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Risch, uh, committee members, very good to be with you today, uh, as always. And thanks for the opportunity to speak to the administration's proposed FY24 budget for the State Department and the Agency for International Development. Uh, we meet at an inflection point, and I think that's reflected, actually, in what both the chairman and ranking members said. Uh, the post-Cold War world uh, era is, is over, and there is an intense competition underway to determine, to shape what uh, comes next. Uh, The United States has a positive vision for the future, uh, a world that is free, that is secure, that is open, that is prosperous. The budget that we're putting forward will help us advance that vision and deliver on issues that are important to most of the American people uh, by preparing us to engage effectively two broad sets of challenges. Uh, The first set is posed by our strategic competitors, uh, the immediate acute threat posed by Russia's autocracy and its aggression against Ukraine. Uh, and the long-term challenge from the People's Republic of China. Uh, The second set is posed by some shared global tests, including the climate crisis, migration, food and energy uh, insecurity, pandemics, all of which have a direct impact on the lives and livelihoods of Americans, (coughs) as well as people around the world. Uh, With this committee's leadership and support across two State Department authorization bills, the United States is in a stronger geopolitical position than we were a couple of years ago. We've drawn enormous power from investments we've made in our own economic strength and technological edge at home, including through the Infrastructure Investment Act, through the Chips and Science Act, through the Inflation Reduction Act. Our unmatched network of alliances and partnerships has never been stronger. We're expanding our presence in critical regions, like the Indo-Pacific, and we're leading unprecedented coalitions to confront aggression and address humanitarian crises around the world. The President's FY24 budget request for the State Department and USID Meet this moment head on. Uh, the budget will sustain our security, uh, economic, energy, and humanitarian support for Ukraine to ensure that President Putin's war remains a strategic failure. The budget will also strengthen our efforts to outcompete the PRC. President Biden and I share the Chairman and Ranking Member's commitment to the Indo Pacific, which is why this proposal <coughs> asks for an 18 percent increase in our budget for that region over FY23. Uh, The budget contains both discretionary and mandatory proposals for new innovative investments to outcompete China, including by enhancing our presence in the region and ensuring uh, what we and other fellow democracies have to offer, including things like maritime security, disease surveillance, clean energy infrastructure, digital technology, is more attractive than the alternative. Uh, The budget will help us push back on advancing authoritarianism and democratic backsliding by strengthening democracies around the world, including through supporting independent media, uh, countering corruption, defending free and fair elections. And it will allow us to pay our contributions to international organizations because we need to be at the table wherever and whenever new international rules that affect the livelihoods of our people are actually being debated and decided. Uh, The budget will allow us to continue leading the world in addressing global challenges from food and energy insecurity to climate and health crises. And on that last point, uh, we're celebrating this week the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, I think one of the greatest achievements in our foreign policy in recent decades, which has helped save 25 million lives around the world. Uh, This budget will help us continue the fight against HIV-AIDS while advancing global health security more broadly through a new Bureau of Global Health Security and Diplomacy, which I look forward to working with Congress to establish this year. The budget will advance our efforts to modernize the State Department, including by expanding our training flow, updating our technology, carrying out diversity, (coughs) equity, inclusion, and accessibility initiatives, including to make our overseas missions more accessible. Um, I'm grateful for the progress that we've already made together, including Congress's support It updating the Secure Embassy Construction and Counterterrorism Act and Accountability Review Board, which gives us more flexibility to open new missions and to better manage the risks that our people face around the world. Uh, We know there's more to do, uh, and we're looking forward to working with Congress to accelerate modernization efforts so that the Department can better attract and retain uh, and support our first-rate workforce as they advance our interests in what is a complex and fast-moving landscape. Finally, uh, the budget uh, will further a priority for me. And I know for many of you, and that is supporting, uh, enduring welcome, our whole-of-government effort to resettle our Afghan allies. Keeping our promises to those who serve with us uh, remains an unwavering priority. This budget will help us continue to make good on that commitment. Um, Mr. Chairman, as you referenced, when I began this role, I committed to restoring uh, a, a real partnership with Congress uh, as an equal partner in our foreign policymaking. Uh, and I really value uh, tremendously the uh, work that we've done together, the engagements that, uh, that we've had, uh, Mr. Chairman, ranking member Rish, and look forward to continuing those and uh, also to uh, working on this budget uh, uh, together as we move forward in the months ahead. so thank you very much for having me here today.
0: All right, Thank you mr. Secretary. Secretary. The committee will be in order. the committee will be in order committee will be in order. the committee will be in order. <laughs> The committee will stand in recess until the police can restore order.
3: If you don't like the Chinese
0: proposal, it will come back to order. So, Senator Rich says it never happened when he was chairman. I don't remember that be the case. But uh, let me just say uh, to our guests. Uh, We invite uh, the public to be here so that they can see the proceedings Uh, but there's work being done here and so we cannot have disruptions of that work. So you're welcome to join us, welcome to see what's happening. Uh, I didn't say anything when you lifted your signs but once you break into a public uh, outcry you disrupt the proceedings. That is not democracy in action. Uh, so uh, we'll continue. Mr. Secretary, we'll start around with seven minutes. Uh, thank you for your statement. Uh, we, we just saw uh, that Xi Jinping is doubling down on his commitment to support Russia's Vladimir Putin. She uh, is no peacemaker. Uh, he uh, s- seems uh, ready to validate Russia's war crimes in Ukraine, require nothing of them to resolve the crisis except to blame the West and the Ukrainians for having the audacity to put up a fight against an illegal invasion. Um, But in the process, uh, Putin has become Xi's junior partner, because I was looking at those agreements and they basically largely go one way towards China in terms of investments, but very little in back as it relates to Russia. So, but he needs the international approval that he thinks Xi gives him, and obviously they need each other for a variety of reasons. This is just emblematic of the global strategic challenge that China is to us. We are focused on Ukraine, of course, as Russia uh, continues its uh, illegal assault upon the Ukrainian people and its war crimes. Uh, and I appreciate that the administration said crimes against humanity. Uh, but our long term geostrategic challenge is China. How do you think this budget? helps us begin to resource that challenge, because we have more embassies, more personnel in the Chinese Communist Party around the world than we do of our own.
2: No, I very much appreciate the question, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, a few things. Uh, first, um, there are a number of things beyond the budget that we've done to put ourselves in a stronger position to deal with the competition from China. One, of as I said, are the investments that we've made in ourselves over the last couple of years, which are having a powerful impact around the world as people see that we're serious about uh, our own future. And I point again uh, specifically to chips and science, but as well as some other legislation. Second, uh, we have made a very significant effort to uh, align with allies and partners around the world. And uh, we're seeing that play out in Europe. We're seeing that play out in Asia in terms of having a more common approach to the challenges posed by China. Having said that, uh, this also needs to be uh, effectively resourced. One of the reasons that uh, we are uh, putting forward uh, a request for mandatory uh, allocations here is because we are facing uh, a generational challenge, and we think that the discretionary alone uh, is not enough to help us uh, outcompete China. We have to find, and the budget proposes, some new and innovative ways to provide viable alternatives at scale that discretionary funding uh, does not. So uh, I think if you uh, look at some of the work that um, uh, we're trying to do, we have um, a proposal for $400 million to counter specific uh, actions by China that counter uh, our interests in um, the Indo-Pacific and beyond, Uh, $2 billion for high-quality infrastructure projects to more effectively compete uh, with the work that China does that is not just economic it's strategic in terms of advancing uh, infrastructure. We need to be able not, of course, to match them dollar for dollar, which we'll never do, but to be more effective in catalyzing private sector investment and doing it in a more coordinated way with allies and partners, uh, we have investments in Indo-Pacific economies. Uh, we have um, a new DFC fund, which is a critical tool, I think, to leveraging a private sector investment. And we have this commitment to the uh, Compacts of Free Association uh, with uh, the Marshall Islands, with Palau, with Micronesia, uh, as well more, as more broadly with the Pacific Islands, where we are going to significantly increase our presence and engagement, all of which needs to be funded.
0: I appreciate that. I, I think we need... Um, and uh, Senator Romney has raised this several times. This is like a whole-of-government perspective. Uh-huh. I've asked you about the State Department, but you need a whole-of-government strategy to meet the challenge of China. Uh, the Chips Act was one element of that that the Congress passed last year. I hope we can get a strategic vision from the administration as to all the integrations of an all-of-government approach. This uh-huh. is a good uh, elements of that, but we need something broader. And and we look forward to working with you on that. Uh, I I want to turn uh, to Iran for a moment. We have...
3: uh, uh, The
0: committee is standing in recess. Back to order. I would ask the... Maybe you should ask the million Uyghurs in concentration camps how they feel about that. Uh, Let me uh, ask you about Iran. Uh, So... Iran continues to march on in its fissile materials, about 87 percent now, still hasn't come clean with the IAEA about its previous undeclared places, is providing drones. Yesterday, there was an enormous number of strikes uh, against Ukraine by Iranian drones given to the Russians. And obviously, they must be getting uh, uh, things from the Russians that they need, particularly in um, you know, uh, equipment that they need to ultimately achieve some of their goals. Uh, we have their oils being exported uh, to countries that are not observing the sanctions. At the end of the day, um, when are we going to get our European uh, allies to join us in coming to the understanding that we're at a point that despite their best efforts, Iran has not lived up to its obligations to them, the JCPOA, to the international community, and continues to be a challenge?
2: Mr. Chairman, I actually think they're at that point. Uh, in Are they sense. ready
0: to multilateralize sanctions
2: with it? So, two things. One is, uh, as a result of the effort to get back into uh, mutual compliance with the JCPOA and the fact that Iran uh, rejected uh, what was uh, put on the table by the European Union, by uh, France, by Germany, uh, by the United Kingdom, as well as uh, as us and actually supported at the time by Russia and China. Uh, I think that has demonstrated to uh, our partners in Europe that Iran was not serious about uh, genuinely reengaging uh, on uh, on nuclear diplomacy. Uh, at the same time, the developments of the last um, six months to include the provision of drones to Russia for its war of aggression against Ukraine, to include of course what's happening in the streets of Iran, the repression of its people. Uh, all of that has further concentrated minds in a, in a significant way, including uh, in Europe, uh, we have taken uh, increasingly uh, coordinated actions uh, together with uh, with our partners, particularly uh, with regard to um, uh, to sanctions. Uh, we continue to do that. We are pushing back with them on the provision of drones and other uh, technologies to uh, to Russia, including seeking to break up the uh, the networks, uh, trying to get at the um, uh, dual use items that go into the uh, construct the the manufacturing uh, of these drones. Um, And, of course, uh, we are uh, working ourselves to deal with the actions that some of their proxies are taking um, in the Middle East itself, in in Iraq. and I
0: I just think, Mr. Secretary, that the Europeans have not joined us in multilateralizing our sanctions, which at this time to Iran would have a a, a huge consequence and hopefully change their calculus in a peaceful way. And... um, I just hope we can engage more vigorously with them. I certainly talk to those who come to visit us and parliamentarians from those countries. It's time to come to the conclusion that if we want Iran to move in a different course, others have to join us uh, as well. And I hope we are more robust in in that part of the element of how we're dealing with Iran. Senator Risch.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I I concur with the Chairman's remarks regarding the uh, Iran situation. Um, I, I, not on everything? I just no, no let's, let's, let's not go overboard. Okay. Um, he and I met with the uh, IAEA and I think they're doing a, a really good job. I really do. I think that there's a different attitude there than there's been in years past and uh, they, they are very clear-eyed and more importantly, they're willing to actually talk about it and say the things that's on their mind about what they're finding and not finding. So Um, again, we need to encourage our European allies to uh, join us uh, in what we're trying to do as far as uh, Iran is concerned. Um, You're probably aware that uh, here in the Senate, last week and this week and probably next week and maybe after that, we're talking about a a potential repeal of the 2002 AUMF. Mm -hmm. And there's legitimate... Uh, differences of opinion on this as to whether it should be done completely, whether it should be done partially, and, and uh, that's all well and good and we're debating it. Included in that, however, is a, uh, an attempt to uh, repeal the 2001 AUMF. And I've got a few questions I want to ask you about the 2001 AUMF. Sure. And that's, th- these are just 2001, not the 2002. Mm-hmm. So the first question I have is, is the administration currently using the 2001 AUMF legal authorities? Uh, we are. Uh, second question I have is, in the absence of a new AUMF to replace 2001, is it a vital authority?
2: Uh, in the absence of being able to replace it with, with something to rely on? Yes, it is.
1: And then uh, lastly... Um, do you think the 2001 uh, repeal uh, should take place before there is an actual replacement of it?
2: Um, I would hope that if we're moving in that direction, uh, we do this uh, concurrently, which is to say there shouldn't be any gap between the repeal, potential repeal of the 2001 authorization and a replacement. Uh, we are fully prepared uh, to work with Congress uh, on finding uh, a way if that's the direction you take to uh, Repeal, but replace 2001 with something, if that's the direction of Congress, that is uh, focused, appropriately targeted. But as it stands, we continue to rely on it to make sure that we're uh, protecting the security of Americans who remain under threat from al-Qaeda, from ISIS-K. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, I appreciate that, and... uh, and the, uh funding the oppression of the public. Uh, will come to order. To- Maybe we stand in room. recess until There's orders are yeah. So moving along, um I want to talk about uh, the uh, Outcompete China initiative, which I think we, we're all in agreement on as far as objective is concerned. How we get there, of course, is a matter of debate. And I don't want to get too far in the weeds on, uh, on budgeting, but this is a budget hearing, after all. And uh, the Department's seeking a $2 billion mandatory expenditure and $250 million in discretionary funds for that. Um, the $2 billion mandatory funds... Probably are less likely than anything else. So the question I've got for you is: uh, uh, are, are, are you thinking that uh, that there's going to be another, or the administration will be pursuing another supplemental if necessary? Is that the thought process here, or what? Uh,
2: no, Senator. I mean, I can't speak to that at this point. Uh, I think it's 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 premature to get to that. The the budget is in its on its own merits our best assessment of the resources we believe we need, absent anything else, to effectively advance uh, the uh, the effort to deal yeah, with the challenges posed by China.
1: Yeah, fair enough, and I, I, although I think you would agree with me that the two billion is in mandatory is mm-hmm. gonna to be tough to do. Would you? It's probably gonna be a pretty heavy lift for the appropriators. Um, so in that regard, as you know, I wrote to the department asking about uh, uh, expenditure for hard infrastructure. Including transport, energy, and uh, digital uh, infrastructure, mm-hmm. and I was assured that that was going to happen with, with the two billion. But then the question becomes: If we, if it moves from mandatory over to discretionary, will it, is your view the same that these expenditures will be for this hard infrastructure as opposed to social kind of programs?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly determined to to do that. Um, we're going to have, you know, some. T- uh, Top line budget challenges, depending on how these funds are actually Fair statement. apportioned. So, but that would certainly be my determination. Look, we uh, to your point, um, we are in a, a competition, including uh, on things like hard infrastructure, where they're able to mobilize all of the resources of the state uh, to do it in a way that um, invests in lost leader projects because it's strategically important to them. Now, we've seen a, a something of a backlash against this in country after country, where it turns out that. Taking this money is not necessarily uh, leaving countries in the best best place, Uh, piling debt on, as we all know, uh, bringing in uh, laborers from uh, from China instead of using local workforces, uh, not caring about worker rights, environmental protection, et cetera, bringing corruption with it. So it's been a double-edged sword for a lot of people. Nonetheless, the resources are significant. Our comparative advantage is finding ways to catalyze more effectively private sector investment we need to be able to uh, to do that uh, by putting some of our own uh, money down, equity down. Uh, one of the, the tools, by the way, that, that you all know so well, because you've been instrumental in, in helping to shape it, is the Development Finance Corporation. Uh, and uh, we also think it would be very useful to change the way that um, its equity participation is scored, uh, which makes it very hard for it to provide as much equity investment in projects as uh, it otherwise would. It's what's most it's the greatest guarantor to others coming in on projects to see a little bit of money on the table from the uh, from the government. DFC is an important vehicle for that.
1: I appreciate that. Uh, my time's almost up, but I want to take one quick bite of the apple here on Taiwan. You
0: I noticed, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Disrupt-
2: uh, ranking Member, it's, it doesn't seem to be directed at you. <laughs> no, it doesn't seem to be
1: directed. At you. <laughs> All right. So uh, one one quick question before I uh, yield uh, here is uh, Taiwan. I, I was deeply disappointed when I saw what was proposed here. The sixteen million dollars is, I mean, it's it's stunningly. If, if we're going to if we're going to pursue the porcupine theory of of how to defend uh, Taiwan. I mean, the 16000000 uh, is million doesn't even pay car fare over there, it seems like to me. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, so, We've got to do better than
2: that. No, a few things, and this, I know this merits a longer conversation. Maybe we can at least start it. Uh, so when it comes to Taiwan, um, we have a, a couple of things. We appreciate the authority that's uh, been given for uh, foreign military financing. We also appreciate the drawdown authority, which we're looking at how we could effectively use. When it comes to the FMF, what we put in place in the budget is a uh, broader fund, uh, an emerging priorities fund globally. It's about one hundred and thirteen. million million dollars. But when it comes to Taiwan, uh, what we've been focused on is uh, foreign military sales. And over the course of the last uh, few years, uh, we have done uh, about $5 billion in uh, foreign military sales since the start of this administration, about $10 billion going back to 2019. I have signed out more cases as Secretary of State last year than any previous Secretary has done. Uh, Taiwan increased its defense budget by about 11 percent. Uh, so it has significant means uh, to acquire this uh, technology. So we're looking at the best ways to get it. One of the challenges we have uh, has little to do with our budgets or our authorities. As I think, again, everyone on this committee knows very well. Uh, we, the long pole in the tent uh, in providing equipment to Taiwan to defend itself uh, is the production capacity uh, here. And this is something, of course, that we're, we're working on. Uh, but in terms of the, uh, the, the, both the monies and the authorities, we found that the FMS program in particular – is best suited, and there's certainly not been any delay in getting um, these uh, cases out the door. State Department, I turn them around very, very quickly.
1: Um, Thank you very much, thank you, Mr. Chairman.
4: Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair and Mr. Secretary, welcome back. I wanna focus on the Western Hemisphere. Um, The administration's budget request is for 2.7 billion in funding for the hemisphere, and that's a 430 million or 21% increase from the FY22 actual levels just a couple of highlights. Uh, The largest country or regional level recipients are Central America, 979 million, Haiti, 292 million, and about 275 million is intended for hemispheric efforts to manage migration. In In the Central American area, one of the challenges we have is we would like to invest to deal with root causes of immigration, promote stability, economic development, but many of the government partners in that region are not reliable partners. So how do we make an investment of that size, $979 million, or any sizable investment when the partners, uh, the governments there are not reliable?
2: Yeah, I very much appreciate that, uh, Senator. And the, uh, the short answer is by, as necessary, working around the governments when we don't have effective partners. Yes, we've got about a uh, billion dollars requested in aid for, uh, for Central America. We have of course, laws and regulations to ensure that the money is not diverted, for example, to corrupt actors. Uh, But at the same time, uh, we want to make sure that it's used effectively to do the things that we want to do, including getting some of these root causes. Uh, Vice President Harris led a major and very successful effort to generate significantly more private sector investment in Central America, a call to action that's produced over $4 billion in commitments from the private sector to invest directly Mm -hmm. in projects in Central America, which will create opportunity, create jobs for people, and give them, uh, in that sense, a greater opportunity to stay, uh, not to um, uh, take the hazardous journey uh, to the United States. Now, these things take time to, uh, to realize, as you know, but uh, we have a lot of work that's going on there. And again, this is not going to the governments. It's going to the, uh, the uh, private sectors. It's going to implementing partners in terms of our assistance. We would like to be able to work as closely as possible with governments, but unless and until we're satisfied that uh, we can do that in a way that doesn't result in the uh, taxpayers' money being uh, ill-spent. We're going to continue to work directly with um, uh, NGOs or with the private sector.
4: Let me just, on the NGO point, just for my colleagues, and to put it on the record, I'm sure you're grappling with it, several countries in Central America have either adopted or are considering adopting very stringent laws against foreign NGOs. So some of the very partners with whom we might be able to effectively serve people in the Northern Triangle and other nations are now kind of getting cracked down on by the governments. And this affects not only the NGOs, but even Sorry. USAID's ability to work with partner agencies. Uh, talk about the impacts of these laws and how you and USAID are attempting to deal with that challenge.
2: No, you're exactly right. And we've seen that these, some of these laws are ripped from the uh, play, playbooks from uh, Russia, uh, China, and other places.
0: The committee
2: will stand. Please. Thank you. Um, no, you're exactly right. As I said, uh, as you said, we've seen um, uh, different countries, including in our own hemisphere, uh, put forward some of these laws that uh, in a very onerous ways restrict and, and, and in a practical manner actually uh, end up uh, crippling some of the um, NGOs and their ability to, uh, to operate. So in um, some
4: nations, like Nicaragua, we're not just cracking down on NGOs, but kicking them out ik- of the country. Yes, yeah, right? so,
2: uh, uh, in effect, uh, putting them out of business entirely. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. This is also very much part of our own engagement, part of our own diplomacy, uh, and part of the conversation that we have with other uh, countries in the hemisphere who may have better relations with some of these countries than we do to press them to use the influence that they have to make sure that that space remains open and doesn't get shut down. Who,
4: who are the star performers in the region? Because this is a region that really is backsliding in democracy in many ways, but not, not everyone is backsliding. Some are forward-leaning, so who are some of the star performers in the region in terms of, for example, willingness to call out bad behavior, uh, well, go to bat for NGOs?
2: It's very interesting. I think, uh, Senators, you know well, we have countries that have very significant challenges, but a country like Ecuador continues to stand strongly. Uh, for Democratic Uh Chile um, also um, speaks up and speaks out in ways that I think are, are compelling because uh, it's not um, exclusively about uh, governments of, uh, uh, of the right. It uh, goes to governments of the, of the left as well. Uh, those are two countries. Now, of course, we have uh, countries like uh, Costa Rica uh, that it
4: remains uh, a champion. Costa Rica, for example, together with... Um South Korea, the Netherlands, the United States, and uh, Zambia mm-hmm. are five of the co-hosts for the upcoming round two of the Summit for Democracies. Right. What, what are, is the administration expecting out of the summit at the end of the
5: month?
2: Well, what we want to do, and, and see and we'll have more to say about that uh, over the next uh, week or so, is to follow up on a lot of the work that was done at the first summit uh, to uh, demonstrate that there are concrete results coming out of these countries uh, coming together, Um, for example, on uh, media protections, which is something else that's under challenge around the world. We've had very concrete initiatives to uh, help uh, defend journalists if they're literally under physical threat, to deal with lawfare that's being uh, used against them to try to put them out of business with frivolous lawsuits coming from governments, funds that we've established uh, to do that. And, of course, in the NGO space, pushing back on uh, the tightening of that space. But there are other countries in the hemisphere that have also been very strong uh, partners for us, Dominican Republic, uh, on uh, many things, uh, and uh, as well uh, panama uh, so they're, they're, uh, while trends have been moving in in some directions, I think we continue to see some strong partners that we have a real incentive in uh, in working
4: with and trying to bolster with a minute left, let me ask you about Haiti. Um, obviously, we want to engage with other nations. I was in the region recently, a lot of concern about the, the security situation there. There has to be something to, to stabilize the security situation before you could get into any meaningful uh, you know, political reform talks, elections, etc. Those are not going to happen easily with a security situation that is unstable. Talk a little bit about the U.S. efforts to work with others to promote increased stability in Haiti. Uh,
2: so we have uh, gangs running amok in, uh, in Haiti and um, uh, dominating... Uh, important parts of the capital, Port-au-Prince, as well as other uh, major cities, including ports, uh, transportation uh, networks, uh, terrorizing people uh, in their daily lives, but also, in many cases, aided and abetted uh, by uh, political figures and other uh, leaders who use them for their own purposes. We've been trying to break that nexus, including by sanctioning uh, leaders who uh, we believe are um, supporting uh, these gangs to try to break that up. At the same time, We've been working hard to try to bolster the Haitian National Police along with a number of other countries so that they can provide the basic security that the state is supposed to be in the business of providing. Uh, It is challenging. The uh, HNP is very challenged, but we're uh, engaged along with Canada and some other countries in trying to bolster them up. As you know, there's a very active discussion going on now about whether some sort of international support is needed to um, really manage the insecurity that Haitians are, are, are facing. To get to an election, which uh, Haiti needs because it's, it's basically running out of legitimate actors at this point, um, it under present circumstances would be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to hold. So it's something we're very actively working on. The Security Council uh, is also focused on this and seized with this. But I don't want to minimize the, uh, the challenge. The insecurity, uh, mostly as a result of gangs dominating the, um, uh, the situation, is a, is a big problem.
4: Mr. Mr. Chair, I yield back. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Ricketts.
6: Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here today. I want to start by talking about uh, the United Arab Emirates. As you're aware, in January 17th of 2022, the Houthi-backed rebels, or the Houthi rebels backed by the Iranians, launched uh, missiles and drones at uh, Abu Dhabi and killed three people, injured six others. In our visit there last month, the number of officials in the UAE treated this like their 9-11. Mm. They said those were specifically. This was our 9-11. And what they relayed to us was that they're unhappy with regard to the administration's response that President Biden didn't call. There was a weak response from the United States. In fact, I think it was reported later that you later called Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed and apologized for not having a stronger response. And I can tell you, a year later, they are still very mad that if you did indeed call to apologize, it did not do the trick because they are still very, very unhappy. So instead of having the opportunity to talk about how we could strengthen our relationship with the UAE and how we might be able to uh, make sure that we've got a strong relationship versus the Chinese Communist Party, we were instead lectured about this fumbled in diplomacy. And again, this just leads to our allies in the region looking for other help, and we've seen that recently, for example, with what the CCP is doing. Obviously we've all read the newspapers about uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran agreeing to establish diplomatic relations with the help of the CCP brokering that deal, which I think we all agree makes us look bad. So first of all, let's just start with how did it happen that we didn't call uh, the Crown Prince? and have President Biden call him. I, I don't expect that that would be President Biden who would be thinking those things up. That should certainly somebody on his team be telling him, hey, you need to give uh, you know, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed a phone call?
2: Uh, Senator, thank you. You know, in fact, I spent um, not just on the phone, I spent uh, two and a half, three hours in person with uh, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed um, in actually in Morocco. This goes back to last year. We had a very lengthy discussion about this moment, and I agree with you that um, for our uh, Emirati partners and friends, this was a profound moment. And I certainly heard from him uh, what you just shared, the, the concern that uh, we had not adequately um, in, in engaged them. Now, I will tell you that I, other, counter, uh, other partners in, in the government, did reach out um, immediately to our, uh, to our counterparts, in my case, the foreign minister. Um, we, uh, if you ask the Secretary of Defense, he will tell you, tell you about the assets that we deployed uh, immediately to um, bolster uh, the Emirates' uh, security. Uh, he'll tell you as well that um, the technology that was used to shoot down uh, the incoming was American technology that we provided. Nonetheless, I w- I'm d- deeply sensitive to the way this was perceived by our friends. And um, you know, my own conversations with, uh, with MBZ uh, made it clear that we understood. And that we would uh, be with them and and stand with them against uh, threats to their security. Since then, we have been working on uh, negotiating a strategic framework agreement to, in very, you know, concrete ways, address some of the concerns they have to answer some of the questions they have about their security. And we've done a lot of work on that and made, I think, uh, some very, very good progress. We've worked very closely together in building out um, the Abraham Accords. uh, Part of uh, we started something together called the Negev Forum, along with, uh, with Israel, uh, with uh, Bahrain, uh, with Morocco, uh, with uh, Egypt, that we all took part in. Um, we put something together that um, I think is going to bear very good results, bringing together uh, the Emirates, Israel, India, and the United States, something we call I2U2, to jointly invest in infrastructure projects. And the first ones are going forward uh, in India. We've made clear that in terms of some of the weapon systems that they seek for their security – uh, we uh, are fully prepared to move forward. These are systems that they started to discuss uh, previously. They, they pushed the pause button. We said we'd welcome pursuing this conversations, including the F-35s. Um, so I think there are a whole variety of things that are going on in, in the relationship to demonstrate uh, the seriousness that we attach to the partnership and our commitment to it.
6: Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that, and it's an important relationship. So I encourage you to continue, because I can tell you, having just been there last month, they are still not happy. This is still a very sore spot for them. Mm. There's more that we need to do to make sure we can strengthen this relationship. So, and and I encourage you to figure out ways that not let this happen again to one of our key allies, where if a call from the president's going to be important that, you know, I view this as the State Department and you as the head of the State Department's responsibility to make sure the president's informed about making these types of phone calls. Uh, Next, I'd like to move on to uh, the effectiveness of the sanctions in Russia. Um, You know, early in February, 2022, President Biden warned Vladimir Putin that he has never seen sanctions like the one I have promised to impose, and, and soon... After uh, Russia's illegal invasion of uh, Ukraine, the West did impose tough sanctions, including measures that included removal of the Russian banks from the SWIFT uh, network, sanctions on Russia's central bank, freezing $300 billion of Russia's foreign reserves, among other things. And the expectation of this was that this would cripple the Russian economy. Uh, in April, uh, or the World Bank, predicted by April 2022, Russia economy would be contracting by 11.2%. Um, The International Institute of Finance went even further predicting the Russian economy would uh, decline by a whopping 15 percent. Instead, the Russian economy was weakened, but it certainly was not crippled, uh, having shrunk maybe two to four percent last year, much less than the 10 to 15 percent that people were predicting. My question is, you know, what did we miss? Uh, You know, first, the ability for Russians to sanction proof its economy as well as actions taken by the Russian central bank to implement aggressive capital control measures and interest rate hikes to prevent the collapse of the ruble. Second, Russia would still be able to sell oil that would have gone to Europe to countries like China and India. And in fact, India imports of Russian oil are up 400%, as you know. Um, and then third, the ability of Russia to circumvent these sanctions. Um, you know, for example, Turkish companies exported tens of millions of dollars worth of machinery, electronics, spare parts, and other items that Russia needs for its military. Countries that border Russia like Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan have become primary importers of dual-use goods from the West and then reselling them in Russia. And this week, the New York Times reported that China has sold more than $12 million in drones for Russia uh, that they'll use in the war effort. So clearly, we have to do better. So uh, in March last year, you said that Western sanctions are having a crippling effect on the Russian economy. After a year of conflict in Ukraine, do you – believe that these are crippling, and if not, what more do we need to do to sanction Russia?
2: Thank you very much, Senator. Um, uh, Two things on this. First, um, Russia did take extraordinary measures, for example, to prop up the ruble, uh, the expenditures from its sovereign wealth fund as well to make sure it was propping up its economy. That certainly had some effect on some of the macro numbers. But as I see it, the sanctions, the export controls are having and will have uh, an increasingly powerful effect on Russia's ability to prosecute uh, modern warfare, to develop its economy, to uh, progress in its technology, to uh, acquire and use uh, energy extraction technology that it needs, uh, to uh, modernize its uh, aerospace and defense sectors. All of these things uh, are being dramatically uh, undercut by the sanctions and by the export controls. Yes, it is finding some substitute parts for things that are being denied by dozens of countries around the world. Those parts are inferior. It's having tremendous difficulty in replacing the weapons that it's expending, particularly precision-guided munitions uh, in, uh, in Ukraine, actually replacing those, getting the parts to do that. Um, and a combination of things, along with the sanctions and export controls, including the exodus of nearly a million Russians, many of whom are the most educated, most technologically sophisticated. The fact that 1,000 or more international companies have left Russia, don't want to do business there. Um, all of these things taken together, never mind the fact that uh, horrifically uh, some 200,000 Russians, by public estimates, have either been killed or wounded in Ukraine. All of these things will have growing and powerful effects on Russia's ability uh, both to continue to have a, a modern, uh, effective military and to have a uh, modern, effective economy going forward. Um, so I have no, uh, no doubt about the powerful impact so, of these so
6: things. We do, do we need to do more, though? Uh,
2: we are working every single day, not just us, but in very close coordination with dozens of countries around the world. The European Union uh, has now um, uh, done, uh, I think, uh, uh, 10 different sanctions packages on Russia. This is something no one would have expected. Uh, we have uh, ourselves uh, continue to look at the different actors that we can go after, the different sectors that we can go after to um, have an impact. And I think, again, you're going to see this increase in the threat. They are having tremendous difficulty uh, replacing uh, the equipment that they've been using up. Uh, and they are looking – you're right, they are looking at different places around the world – but it's not at all the same as what they had before.
7: Thank you. Senator Merkley. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Secretary. We've just witnessed a three-day uh, row fest with Putin and, and Xi celebrating authoritarian power. Uh, China certainly running over the top of Hong Kong, and, and, and of course we're very concerned about its threat to Taiwan. Uh, Russia uh, assaulting Ukraine and, and trying to uh, take it in a, just a, a brutal uh, display of, of force. Uh, how much should the uh, American public be concerned about the way these authoritarian leaders are approaching the world?
8: Well,
2: on one level, this is, um, uh, this is no surprise. Both countries uh, have very different worldviews than our own. Uh, they may find common cause in uh, opposing the uh, worldview that we and so many other countries around the world seek to defend um, and advance before the Russian aggression against Ukraine. You'll remember that uh, they uh, they had a President Xi and President Putin had a meeting in which they declared a, a partnership with, with no limits or limitless friendship, depending on how you translate it. And uh, to some extent, we continue to see that that play out. Um, I think uh, in many ways, with Russia now is the very junior partner in uh, in this relationship, uh, but a partner that may serve some interests that uh, that China has. Uh, but what we've done. Uh, at the same time, is to make a major reinvestment, rejuvenation, re-energizing of our own alliances and partnerships. And we now have much greater convergence than we had uh, a couple of years ago on how to approach both of these challenges. You see that in the coalition that's come together to oppose the Russian aggression against against Ukraine, uh, both in terms of the support for Ukraine and the pressure being exerted against Russia. You see that in the work that um, countries are doing together to deal with some of the challenges that, uh, that China poses. We have with um, European partners, uh, Asian partners, much greater convergence on everything from investment screening mechanisms uh, to export controls uh, to um, uh, outward uh, investment. Thank, thank uh, you, and I'm,
7: I'm quite impressed by the way we've, we've uh, responded, but I do, I do think that the uh, circumstances regarding Hong Kong, Ukraine, mm. uh, and uh, China's use of high-tech to suppress the Uyghurs are very appealing strategies uh, too many authoritarian leaders, and uh, we have uh, decades ahead in, in which we're going to be uh, uh, struggling for the vision of uh, democracy and, and human rights uh, versus the authoritarian power. Uh, one of the things that both Russia and China have been engaged in is transnational repression. Mm. And last week I introduced a bill with Senators Rubio, Cardin, and Haggerty, a comprehensive bill. Uh, I want you may not have had a chance to look it over yet, but. Uh, certainly is trying to lay out a a roadmap for us to uh, respond to transnational repression. And um, I just want to keep raising this as a growing threat to citizens inside our own country and also uh, the concern about how they are working to extradite people uh, back to uh, China or Russia uh, with uh, grave consequences.
2: Yeah, we very much share that concern and really welcome working uh, with you, uh, the other members, uh, on that legislation.
7: I will be leading a congressional delegation to Vietnam and Indonesia uh, here shortly, at the beginning of April. And uh, we'll be going to uh, Jakarta uh, to have conversations with ASEAN, uh, given that that's where their capital is right now. And uh, how do you evaluate uh, how successful ASEAN will be in being a significant part of the the structure that kind of resists uh, Chinese uh, expansionist power?
2: I think we're seeing increased concern among um, a number of countries uh, in ASEAN for some of the uh, exertions of power and influence that uh, that China is um, is displaying. Particularly, for example, when it comes to the um, uh, maritime claims that they're making that uh, that uh, are in contradiction with international law. Some of the actions that um, the um, uh, Chinese uh, vessels of one kind or another are taking, uh, and we see this play out uh, on a regular basis. So we're very much engaged, for example, with the, with the ASEAN countries as well as with other countries in helping to build up what's called maritime domain awareness, give, helping to give them the tools to have much greater visibility on what's going on in their own, uh, in their own seas to uh, be able to see uh, in real time any kind of aggressive actions being taken to be able to see in real time Uh, the uh, illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing that is devastating livelihoods uh, in many of these countries where China is one of the principal actors. Um, So I think you're seeing, uh, you know, a real uh, significant awareness of of some of these challenges, and we're taking practical steps to try to help countries address it.
7: uh, Thank you. I'm going to shift uh, to uh, Central America. Mm. Uh, A few years ago, uh, I went uh, uh, down with, with Tom Carper uh, to assess the, the challenges and we found the three C's if you will. We found uh, the cartels, mm-hmm. we found the uh, corruption, and we found the climate change all driving uh, really a disintegration of the economy and livability which were driving factors uh, of folks deciding to take the risky journey north. We have a new opportunity with the New president, well, not so new now, but of Honduras, uh, uh, President Castro. Uh, how's that going?
2: Uh, we've been uh, engaged with uh, President Castro under administration. Um, I think, uh, by the way, as you know, the former president of Honduras is awaiting trial in the United States uh, for uh, for corruption, uh, among among other things. We're working to engage uh, these governments, whether it's uh, Honduras. Uh, whether uh, it's um, uh, Guatemala, whether it's El Salvador. There are challenges posed by some of the policies that the uh, governments are pursuing, but we're working to find ways to engage with them on issues of clearly uh, mutual concern to us. Uh, so we're working on that on a on a regular basis.
7: Well, it's always helpful to have a, a new opportunity, but it's very difficult for a president alone to change mm-hmm. policy when things are deeply embedded and the, the cartels yep. are... Yep are very embedded and, and corruption is uh, very much there, and climate change is not going away, so a, a lot to uh, a lot to overcome uh, going across to uh, to, to Burma, uh, I led a, a congressional delegation years ago when Aung San Suu Kyi invited us to mm-hmm. come and see that there was nothing to hide and then at the last moment, uh, she and her team blocked our ability to see the some three hundred villages that had been burned and raised and and then, uh, since then, we've had the military takeover, and, and things have been uh, perhaps even worse. Um, and we always hope that there is some kind of path back to uh, democracy, uh, back to some form of human rights. Uh, but it's not looking too good. Uh, any, uh, any, any ways you can make me feel better about this?
2: Uh, I wish that I could, but I, unfortunately, I share your assessment. Um, we uh, have been working since the um, military takeover, to uh, do a number of things, including, of course, first and foremost, stopping the violence, which continues to uh, take place every uh, single day. And it's, that's gotten worse to uh, release prisoners uh, and to get back on the path of democracy. None of that uh, has happened. We've been working with many other countries to try to exert pressure on the, uh, on the military regime. We have the, by the way, we have the Burma Act as well, whose passage we, we appreciate and welcome. We're working to implement it. Um, part of that goes to the support that we're providing to um, uh, democratic uh, groups in, uh, in Burma, as well as ethnic groups that are dealing with the repression coming from the uh, military hunter, trying to prepare them uh, effectively for, uh, for governance. Um, and at the same time, we continue to ramp up economic actions uh, against, uh, against the regime. We've designated, I think to date, about 80 individuals, some uh, uh, 30 or 40 uh, entities, military leaders, um, business affiliates, uh, arms dealers, energy companies that are supporting the regime in an effort to exert um, some meaningful pressure to move them back to the democratic path. You were talking about ASEAN a minute ago. Of course, we've been strongly encouraging the uh, ASEAN uh, five-point consensus for them to actually implement it in a, in a meaningful way. That's been very challenging. In short, I wish that I had something uh, positive or hopeful to say. In this moment, it's an incredibly challenged situation. Thank you. Thank you.
9: Senator Paul. On September 12th and November 7th of last year, I sent letters to the State Department asking for records about coronavirus research that had been funded by the State Department. The State Department refused to comply. When Assistant Secretary Sherman came, I asked her the same question. She didn't seem to be aware that you had been funding coronavirus research, but you are. And I got the I'll get back to you line. A couple weeks later, I met personally with you at the State Department and asked you the same question. Will you not divulge to us the records of the State Department's support for coronavirus research, particularly in China? You assured me you would help. We communicated several times over the phone with another assistant secretary of state, uh, who finally sent us a letter and said, no, we're not going to give you anything. So that's where we stand. And it's uh, my question is, what's the State Department hiding? Why won't you give these records to the American people?
2: Uh, Senator, thank you. And, uh, yes, I appreciated uh, you raising this when we saw each other uh, a month or so ago. Uh, and my understanding is that our teams have been working to find an a- accommodation. Uh, there's longstanding We've got a
9: refusal, blanket refusal. No, they are not going to give us the records.
2: Um, we cannot directly provide uh, the uh, sure you can. Unredact- unredacted cables. We have a longstanding practice with this committee. Uh, about how we do You're things. refusing but,
9: you're refusing to release them no, but it's I not think, that you can't there's a difference between can and may you uh, won't do it but you can do it
2: My hope is that we can find a, a way forward that answers your concerns so that you get the information that you're looking for my understanding is that uh, our teams have been working on that and I uh, commit to continue to do that so we can get you the the uh, We're talking
9: about unclassified material most of this is unclassified and so we just had a unanimous vote in the Senate and in the House And President Biden just signed a a bill saying he's going to declassify stuff. But if you declassify it and you still hide it from the American people, that's a problem. I mean, we spend all of this time lambasting authoritarians and for lack of transparency. We have these silly networks on TV that are aligned with the Democrat Party saying democracy is under attack. What do you think? Transparency has something to do with democracy. You're refusing to give records on research Money that went for research. We want to read the research grant proposals. We want to read what the people in Wuhan sent back to the State Department saying they did. Which viruses did they create? Because the thing is, is it sounds all great. We're gonna identify all the viruses of the world. But part of what they do is they take a virus, they found 200 feet down in a cave, and they mix it with another virus to create a virus that doesn't exist in nature, because they say that's how we're gonna further identify it. There's a big debate that should be had whether that's safe to take a virus from 100 feet down a bat cave 12 hours south of Wuhan and take it to a city of 10 million. And yet you won't help us investigate this. You refuse, and it makes it is reminiscent of the countries we criticize for lack of transparency, and yet you sit there and say you're still going to continue to refuse.
2: Um, Senator, I think there are very important uh, debates that certainly go beyond my Knowledge and expertise, for example, on gain of function—that um, uh, I know there's a, a vigorous debate about whether the risk um, outweighs the reward. I don't have the expertise uh, to you know that. And, but
9: how do we have oversight or investigate so, it if you won't give us? a so we
2: so the uh, program that uh, in this instance USAID was involved in was not engaged in gain of function uh, work or gain. That's
9: of a, a debate, but and and that's your opinion. We'd like to see the records. So. Fauci says there was no gain of function in Wuhan, and nobody believes him anymore.
2: You know, again, there's a there's an I think an important debate about this, um, as I recall during the. Uh Obama administration there's actually a moratorium put on I know, but it isn't work. the debate I not don't moratorium.
9: want to have that debate with you I only want to have again the I
2: believe that we can find a way to get you the information that you're looking for. all right We're but the
9: last answer. the last response we have from you is no so the American public needs to know I've asked many many times I've asked you in person this is a second time in person I've talked to two assistant secretaries of state and the writing we get back from you is no not maybe not we'll work with you it's no So So that's where we are now.
2: No, uh, and it's not not no, just to be clear. We did reach back out to your team just as recently as this week to offer to provide all of that information in briefing form, which is to say... Uh, Which means you get to
9: read right. it and interpret it and spin it, and we get to hear your spin we don 't want to hear well, your spin we want to look at the dog we 're talking we're about grant're
2: not grant. we 're we're we're talking
9: businesses. about grant proposals. you ask as if, you act as if we 're talking about the secrets of the manhattan project we 're talking about grant proposals and we 're talking about grant updates where someone has to write in and say, "Oh, we did this experiment, and this experiment, we got this result that 's what we 're talking about, same thing from NIH, same thing from HHS. Everybody's hiding it, and it's not even really something to protect the Biden administration. Most of this stuff happened in the previous administration. But I don't get it. Why circle the wagons? Maybe there's nothing to see here, but then it makes the whole world think you're hiding something if you won't give it to us. Yeah, so goes- just give it to us. It's a bunch of bureaucratic paper that we're looking to sift through to see if there are any clues. Because one of the biggest clues we have that they did this is they asked DARPA, and we only know this through a whistleblower, they asked DARPA for money to take a coronavirus and put a furin cleavage site in it to make it more infectious. And lo and behold, that's what COVID-19 is. It looks just like what they said they wanted to create with our money. And we turned them down. That doesn't mean they didn't do the research. We're looking for research like that, that they were performing. We're looking for something that may be in their notes that hasn't been public, that hasn't been sifted through. But what we feel is that people at State Department and at NIH and HHS are conflicted. Why? Because if you funded research that somehow is linked to the pandemic or a leakage of that, that doesn't look so good for the people who landed it. So we see this as a circling of the wagons and a conflict of interest that maybe there are people within the State Department who funded research who are worried that it might be linked to the pandemic. But we can't just accept your spin on it because people there may be self-interested, the people who funded the program. We're just asking to look at the data. But so far, you're, you're, it has been no. We've had a few phone calls, but we don't want your spin on it. We want to look at the documents uh, we, ourselves. Uh,
2: we're, we're not providing spin, as I said. I believe we can provide the information you're looking for. We have long-standing practices and procedures in terms of actually providing documents and cables with this committee uh, that uh, we're not prepared to change, but in terms of getting you the
9: information you're right. looking for. Uh, and the only cables we have that are of value, we got leaked to us, or actually they were declassified by the Trump administration. Those cables said, and these were from some State Department yep. folks, and it was amazing, and I don't actually fault anybody for missing it. I'm sure there are thousands of cables, but in 19, uh, in 2018 uh, 18. or 17, they were sending cables back saying, holy you-know-what, they're over here working without gloves in unsafe conditions in a BSL-2 that should be a BSL-4, not a very safe condition, and that's why some of our intelligence people have, have leaned towards this coming from a lab. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you want to help us? Why wouldn't everybody well, want to help
2: us? I, I, I've seen those cables. You're right. They've, uh, they've come out, and I think what they said, at least as I read them, was that there were concerns based on uh, State Department Right, Officials but, we, but we only know those because someone had the gumption to declassify
9: them. And I'll end with this because I know my time's up, Mr. Chairman. It takes one signature, he'll give all this stuff to me tomorrow if you'll sign a document because he says he won't sign it unless the chairman of a committee does it, and he's hiding behind some roost. There is no law saying this. He could do it if he wants, but he's hiding behind some opinion that his own administration makes the rules to say they won't give it to Congress, but if you'll help me, we can get the information tomorrow. Everything he's saying he won't give me, he will give me tomorrow if you'll send a letter.
0: I, uh, I appreciate the Senator's time has expired, but I appreciate uh, your uh, concern. I understand that my committee counsel has spoke to your counsel this past Monday, um, and uh, your counsel followed up with us today, and we are uh, in the pursuit of trying to see how uh, you can be accommodated, and I thank look you. forward to making that happen. Senator Thank Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Mr.
10: Secretary, for being here today. Appreciate it. Um, I want to start with China being labeled as a developing country. The, today, I led a group of 21 senators. It's a bipartisan group introducing legislation to end lending to China through the multilateral development banks. You know, since 2016, China has received about $23 billion from the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. American taxpayers, we are the largest contributor to these banks. Um, And it's completely unacceptable to me for Americans to be subsidizing loans to China. Um, The administration continues to allow American taxpayer dollars to go to the Chinese Communist Party. I believe it needs to end. Uh, Not another dime should be approved. You know, these banks are designed to assist developing countries and china is no longer a developing country It was years and years ago when some of these international organizations were put into place but the designation hasn't changed you know china is the second largest economy in the world uh, clearly has the financial resources the access to capital to meet its own needs without assistance from the international community but the chinese communist party continues to exploit this outdated label as a developing country to get these preferential treatments and loans it's as a developing country, quote, developing country, China also receives funds from international bodies, mostly paid for by American taxpayers. China just got $1.4 billion uh, from the uh, multilateral fund at the Montreal Protocol, which was from back in the 80s. So let's be clear this money moving from America to China, to me, is making China stronger and America weaker. And, you know, and this is at the time when. Um, China's blatantly flying spy balloons over the nation, stealing intellectual property, sending fentanyl and other opioids into the U.S., increasing military aggression. You know, we've got the, the whole list. So it, it just seems that China is playing the international community as well as our own administration as fools. They, their goal is simple. They want to be the world-dominant power. So do, do you believe that China still qualifies as a developing country? And, you know, why should American taxpayers be supporting lending and financial assistance that goes to China?
2: Uh, Senator, I very much appreciate the point. Um, I wanted, on, this, on that specific question, uh, I really have to defer to my colleagues at the, at the Treasury Department. What I can tell you is this. Um, I certainly see, uh, as a general matter, uh, China continuing to raise the, the banner of developing country in a variety of places that doesn't reflect the reality. Uh, another part of this that I think is very important is uh, on debt relief, where uh, countries around the world that um, turn out to owe a lot of money principally – to China, and then desperately need relief. We're also a creditor. Countries in Europe are creditors. And elsewhere, uh, the Chinese continue to insist on being treated differently uh, in the in the technical parlance, not taking the same haircut that everyone else is willing to take. That's unsustainable. Yeah. And in fact, in Sri Lanka recently, where we needed to uh, help Sri Lanka get out of the uh, devastating debt situation it was in, uh, we came together and insisted that uh, no one else would provide the relief unless China uh, similarly uh, treated uh, its, its debt. So I agree with you that these are important things we have to work out. On the specific question, though, I really have to defer to the Treasury Department.
10: Yeah, because we see we are giving subsidized loans to a country that then turns around and can use this money to engage in predatory lending to developing nations as, as you've described. Mm-hmm. So, so next, in terms of, i want to turn to European energy security. Mm-hmm. Europe has learned some really hard lessons following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, none are clearer than the need to have access to affordable and dependable Supply of, of energy, so affordable, mm-hmm. dependable. Mm-hmm. Not the word's not renewable. It's affordable, available, reliable yeah. energy. Uh, Russia has demonstrated over and over again its willingness to use energy as a weapon. Continue to do that. The world has seen Russia threatened our allies and our partners with natural gas. Uh, Europeans understand the crucial importance of increasing U.S. oil and natural gas production and exports to them from here. Um, Unfortunately, President Biden has not necessarily followed that path because of his uh, approach on on the issue of climate and carbon. Do do you support increasing exports of American liquefied natural gas to help our allies and partners escape this dependence on Russia?
2: I do, and we have. Our um, exports to Europe of liquefied natural gas over the last years went up 140 percent. We made a commitment to uh, Europeans, to our partners, in dealing with the aggression against Ukraine to do whatever we could to provide for their energy security as they worked to move away from that dependence. By the way, as as you know, they've done actually remarkable things just in the space of a year to try to end that dependence, both in terms of gas and uh, in terms of uh, of oil. But uh, we we dramatically increased our LNG exports here. Some of it we redirected from Asia. Some of it was a result of increased production. Uh, Oil production itself went up uh, 11%, uh, and that is a result uh, of uh, the policies that we pursued.
10: So then you agree Europe is much better off buying energy resources from the United States than having to buy it from our adversaries. Absolutely. I wanted to talk about uh, fentanyl. I mean, I'm from Wyoming. You'd think, well, how much fentanyl could be going there is not close to the border. But every state is a border state. Wyoming has seen an astronomical increase in the amounts of death related to fentanyl. Uh, Our Division of Criminal Investigation just in 2020 seized about 1,600 dosage units this past year. 13,000, a 13-fold increase in in just a couple, and that was only for three quarters of the year. So so what can we be doing more to to work with the government of Mexico to stop the importation of of fentanyl precursors from China?
2: Senator, I could not agree with you more. I think this is um, among the top, if not the top, challenges that we face. As you know uh, well, uh, the single biggest killer of Americans aged 18 to 49 is fentanyl, synthetic opioids. Uh, and uh, we seized last year uh, enough fentanyl to kill every American. So this is right at the top of the list. So just a, a few things. I think we, we have a comprehensive approach to this problem. Obviously, there's work that we're doing at home just to protect our own people in terms of uh, trying to reduce demand, treatment, uh, antidotes, et cetera. But what is critical are a, a few things. First, uh, border security and itself. We have the technology that is being deployed uh, more effectively now to the border, uh, to much better detect the fentanyl that's coming into the United States from mexico, ninety six percent of it is coming through uh, ports of entry. Uh, the screening technology that's being deployed, that will make a difference. Uh, we're working with Mexico to disrupt the uh, the cartels. Mexico has actually taken with our support significant action uh, to arrest uh, and to disrupt uh, the uh, cartels, the criminal enterprises that are engaged in this, uh, to shut down the labs, uh, to uh, go after the leaders. And then at the same time, There's another aspect of this problem that goes uh, beyond Mexico. One of the challenges, and it goes to China, among other countries, uh, one of the challenges is the diversion of licit precursors into the illicit production of fentanyl. There is a lot that we are doing to try to rally the world to deal with this problem. And so, for example, voluntary agreements among countries and companies, because the private sector is critical, to share information, to better label products, to make sure that you know your customer when you're shipping a chemical that's legal, but then it's being diverted. All of these things are making a difference. For the very first time, I just came from the G20 foreign ministers meeting. For the first time, the United States got this on the G20 agenda. This is important because those countries, the wealthiest economies in the world, are the very ones, along with their private sectors, that can make a big difference. We're putting all of this together. We have with the Mexicans a uh, joint synthetic drug action plan that we agreed to last year that is intensely focused on synthetic opioids notably fentanyl. By the way, one of the other things that's happening, I'll I'll, I'll be quick, is the Mexicans themselves are feeling the brunt of this, which is to say not only have they been a a country where this is being uh, made in and, and shipped through, but more and more Mexicans, unfortunately, are falling victim to synthetic opioids. So their feelings... I've spoken to President Lopez Obrador about this directly... He sees with this, we are doing a lot in partnership with them, to disrupt, to take these cartels down.
10: Let me just end with this, Mr. Chairman, and and may put this to you in writing. But last week, the U.S. Border Patrol, because you mentioned border security, the Border Patrol Chief uh, Ortiz testified before a House Homeland Security Committee hearing in McAllen, Texas. He was pointedly asked whether or not the Department of Homeland Security had operational control of the border. And the chief of the U.S. Border Patrol said, no, sir.
2: Thank you. The only thing I'd just add, if I could, Senator, is just in the case of fentanyl. I'm not speaking to the larger issue. Uh, what we really have to bear down on, and I think uh, it's not my directorial expertise, but based on uh, what I know on the on the border itself, as I said, about 95% of this is coming through the legal ports of entry. It's being smuggled in through those ports, not at points along the border. We do have technology that's much uh, more effective uh, than we've had to be able to detect it. You know, it's being it's under the seats of cars. Uh, We've all all had the tour
10: and seen what they've described. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
2: Thank you.
0: President López Obrador, fentanyl is not produced in Mexico. Senator Duckworth.
11: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Secretary Blinken, for appearing here today. The meeting earlier this week of of the leaders of our two main strategic competitors demonstrates the continued urgency of our nation having a diplomatic core that is second to none. I thank you for your efforts to make this a rea- reality and look forward to engaging more to support our ongoing progress towards this goal. I want to start with my concern with the PRC's actions across the Indo-Pacific from the Mekong River to the South China Sea to the Pacific Island nations. And it's no secret that the PRC is using economic coercion and expanding their diplomatic presence in this key area. And reality dictates that countries in this region cannot ignore the PRC's presence and proximity and yet I still hear from our allies and partners about how the United States remain a strong partner of choice and you've mentioned this before. I also hear from Southeast Asian partners specifically about how Central ASEAN, uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, is to their regional identity and as a shield against dominance by foreign powers. Um, My colleague Senator Merkley uh, mentioned the importance of ASEAN and, and the roles that it plays beyond an economic uh, organization, for example, the work that it is doing to hold Burma accountable for the fine points uh, 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 concerns. And in February, I led a CODEL to Jakarta to engage with ASEAN as an institution and with the Indonesian um, uh, Indonesia bilaterally. There I saw firsthand the eagerness of our partners for more, not less, US engagement, particularly on economic affairs. Uh, Secretary Blinken, can you provide a candid analysis of your department's relationship-building initiatives with key allies and partners in Southeast Asia, particularly with organizations like ASEAN, um, and in particular ASEAN itself, and explain how this budget will improve our ability to advance our Indo-Pacific objectives?
2: Thank you very much, and I I really appreciate the question. First, just very quickly, as as you know very well, this is a critical uh, area for us. We've got 50% of the world's population in the Indo-Pacific. We've got 60% of its GDP. We have a region that is driving basically 75% of economic growth over the last five or six years. So this is vital to us. As it happens, China invests about 50% of its assistance programs and its economic and diplomatic resources in the Indo-Pacific. So we have to be there, first and foremost, and that goes to the efforts that we're doing, and the chairman referenced it at the start. We may not be able to match China person for person, but we're – we're going to be engaged in ways that we haven't been. We're uh, significantly increasing our diplomatic presence in the Pacific Islands. As you know, we've opened in the Solomon Islands. Uh, we're looking at uh, other um, uh, embassies in uh, Tonga and in, uh, and in uh, Kiribati. Um, and at the same time, we have very uh, significantly re-engaged uh, ASEAN, including President Biden, having an extraordinary summit meeting with the ASEAN countries, precisely because we think it's a, an important institution uh, for uh, working together to deal with, uh, with some of these challenges. Um, at the same time, this goes back to the budget, we want to make sure that we are appropriately resourced so that when it comes to uh, countries throughout the region that have um, interests and, uh, and have needs and may be looking uh, to us to be a strong partner, we actually have something to offer. Uh, and it's less about, as I said, forcing them to choose, it's more about giving them a choice and the budget is really designed in that way when it comes, for example, to having the resources to invest coherently uh, in, uh, in infrastructure, uh, to dealing with building climate uh, resilience and adaptation. The Pacific Island countries, of course, mm-hmm. some of them literally at risk of um, no longer existing if they're not able to deal with that. Uh, we have the programs in place, and the budget uh, supports that uh, to be able to do that. But also their, um, uh, their own uh, diplomatic and, uh, and political weight is important And marshalling that on a given problem, whether it's uh, Burma or whether it's some of the um, uh, actions that, that China engages in that they don't like uh, and we don't like, uh, there is much more power and effectiveness in doing engaging these issues together than there is any one of these countries doing it alone. That's why ASEAN itself uh, is important. One of the things that they've worked on for years, as you know, uh, with China is a code of conduct mm-hmm. in the maritime space. Uh, I think uh, China's been dragging that along. For a long time, we tried to um, uh, help reinforce that. Uh, for example, we put out – the State Department put out last year the definitive uh, legal analysis of uh, all of the um, uh, maritime claims uh, to basically help countries push back against some of the egregious assertions mm-hmm. uh, by China in their, uh, in their maritime space in very practical ways, as I mentioned earlier. We're working to give them the tools and resources to have better uh, what's called maritime domain awareness. They have better visibility on their own seas and oceans, for example, to detect illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, which is devastating uh, economies and livelihoods in uh, a large part of the uh, the region. Mm-hmm. So across a whole series of things, we are working together um, and the budget uh, attempts to reflect the importance of that work.
11: Does the budget include an, an increase to the our mission to ASEAN?
2: Um, don't know if it actually has an increase in uh, what's needed for the uh, the mission. I believe that we're uh, appropriately resourced, but let me come back to you uh, on that. And if you've uh, identified uh, any deficiencies, um, I'm happy to happy to hear them. Uh, we've sent one of we we sent someone uh, very experienced, very close to the president, to be our mm-hmm. representative, to ASEAN, uh and um, who was uh, the executive secretary of the National Security Council, who's been doing a terrific job. Mm-hmm. I've engaged uh, repeatedly in person as well as, of course, um, uh, remotely with uh, all of our ASEAN colleagues and with ASEAN itself.
11: And I would hope that um, our ambassador to ASEAN is given all the tools he needs to do the job, and mm-hmm. I don't think he has um, uh, all the resources that he needs. So I, I would could, love I to review to the budget with that. you on that. Thank you. Can you also elaborate more? Uh, you, you, you touched on this, how the economic initiatives in the budget include both newer initiatives such as Outcompete China and the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, as well as ongoing efforts like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. will advance our policy goals in the Indo-Pacific regions. Drill down a little bit more. I know I'm getting into the weeds, but I'm very interested.
2: I think it's it's important. Uh, So we we have a number of uh, programs that we propose to fund uh, in the budget uh, to counter some of the challenges posed by by China in the region. For example, on supply chain uh, dominance, Uh, one of the things that we put together is something called the Mineral Securities Partnership, where we're pooling information and pooling resources with a number of other countries to be able to invest ourselves Mm -hmm. in uh, critical minerals so that they're not dominated by uh, any one country. Um, We're working to build much greater supply chain resiliency, particularly uh, among countries in that region. We have uh, uh, now about 17 economies that are part of this process to prevent near-term disruptions, uh, to make sure that uh, we develop early warning signals in case our supply chains uh, are disrupted. And, of course, for more fundamentally, uh, building out, helping these countries build out uh, a significant amount of infrastructure. We're doing that through some of the funding we have in the budget for the Asia Pacific. We also more broadly have something that the President established with the G7 uh, called the uh, Partnership of Global Infrastructure and Investment. And that really runs the gamut. We've been able to generate investments, starting with government resources, but primarily getting the private sector to invest, uh, we were the catalyst for it, in everything uh, from Brazil, nickel and cobalt mining, to the uh, Indonesian energy transition, a $20 billion uh, investment in helping them make a transition, upgrading telecom networks in the Pacific Island countries, uh, mobilizing investment capital for Internet service providers in uh, in the region, as well as in Africa and uh, in Latin America, uh, setting up vaccine manufacturing in Senegal, uh, and uh, rail linkages uh, among countries in Africa, all of which deals with some of the um, – Uh, challenges that China has posed in being able to have the field to itself in many of these areas. No longer the case. Um, But there's an intense focus in the budget on the Indo-Pacific, more specifically, including a fund to focus infrastructure investment in the the region.
11: Thank you. Wow. Seven minutes goes quick, Mr. Chairman. Or eight
0: minutes. It does when you're covering the world. (laughs) Or even a very specific part of the world. Um,
12: Senator uh, Young. Thank you, Chairman. Good to see you, Mr. Secretary. Welcome to the committee. Thank you. Uh, The Chips and Science Act uh, established an International Technology Security and Innovation Fund, I know you're familiar with it, ITSE, at the State Department to promote international 5G communication security and to secure our semiconductor supply chains. Our long-term national security and economic competitiveness hinge on these two critical Technologies. First, I want to thank you and your staff for their hard work on on these critical topics. I was encouraged to hear that the U.S. was first to engage with our allies to secure critical semiconductor minerals and, and to create additional downstream packaging capacity. In my view, the first mover advantage further emphasizes the importance of the Chips and Science Act. Uh, Mr. Secretary, can you? Describe the strategic impact it would have if the ITSE fund is fully resourced. Looking forward uh, toward the next five years of this fund, uh, what are your goals for this program, if if you could uh, uh, discuss that, and and, uh, um, we'll take it from there. Great.
2: Well, Senator, thank you. And uh, as you know, I think that uh, with your leadership, what Congress was able to do in putting together the Chips and Science Act is one of the... Most important achievements we've had in our uh, ability to uh, compete effectively, uh, particularly with, uh, with China. And by the way, I, when I go around the world, this is one of the things I hear from country after country. They are very well aware of uh, shifts in science and they appreciate it. I think one of the great merits from our perspective is the fact that under the Act you've provided uh, funding over five years. So it's not it's very predictable for us to really do two things to shore up. Uh, Semiconductor supply chains, uh, uh, downstream and upstream, and also to make sure on the telecommunications side uh, that we are um, helping countries put in place uh, networks and infrastructure uh, using trusted vendors uh, and making sure that uh, and and advancing technology like uh, like ORAN uh, that really is the future and uh, again is necessary to making sure that they're not dealing with untrusted vendors. So we have, as as you know, and I know, we our, our teams have been working very closely together, mapped out how we would use both prongs of the, uh, of the fund, that is the semiconductor prong uh, and the um, information communications technology uh, prong, um, making sure that we're getting the upstream uh, inputs uh, and uh, uh, providing the critical minerals that are, that are needed for our own fabs that we're now being built to actually make the, uh, the chips uh, a market that, as you know better than anyone, the, the PRC currently dominates, uh, but that now we have uh, an ability to make real inroads on. Policy coordination uh, among uh, fab nations, usually uh, important uh, and we're seeing that really come to fruition. Um, we, um, uh, we basically can't have countries leaking technology as fast as they can make it. Um, and I think uh, this uh, fund gives us the resources to do that. Expanding downstream capacity, as you mentioned, in a very uh, significant way. Uh, and then the data mapping uh, piece of this. Um, we, uh, we're mapping the supply chains, we're mapping all the entities involved to ensure that we are targeting them to, to best effect. And as I said on the um, telecommunication side of things, uh, developing, strengthening, expanding international enabling environments for these secure networks and deploying ICT networks and services in partner countries, uh, being able to go at with a real alternative, um, 5G coming from other places with something like uh, Oron driving down the costs, providing more secure networks. And all of this mapped out over five years
12: because we've got the predictable funding that is being provided. Thank you for that. I I think it'll be real helpful if on an ongoing basis, members of this committee, and I know my office has been working very closely with, with your team, but uh, if if we were made privy to uh, goals and uh, Uh any adjustments that may be made and, and uh, maybe give us some visibility into the internal tools like, uh, supply chain mapping uh, mm-hmm. that you're using to track progress towards those yeah. goals. So
2: be happy to do that.
12: Thank you. Um, and relatedly, how, how are you working with Secretary Raimondo um, to align the priorities of your respective departments uh, with uh, as it relates to chips and science implementation?
2: Uh, I'd say the best description is hand-in-glove. I'm not sure who's the hand, who's the glove, but hand-in-glove. Um, for example, the Secretary and I together convened... Um, uh, couple of dozen countries at the minister level, Commerce Secretary, Foreign Minister level, uh, on uh, supply chains, um, on uh, building out uh, resilience, diversification, uh, near-shoring, friend uh, One of the things that came out of that ministerial well, it's an ongoing process, is putting in place now an early warning system among these countries for any supply chain disruptions when it comes to, uh, for example, critical minerals, anything going into a semiconductor. So that's the result directly of the work that our two departments and, and we personally have done together.
12: Is there anything else Congress can do at this point uh, to assist you in, in your efforts with respect to chips and science implementation? Um,
2: I think uh, as it stands, our our budget reflects what we need, but what I, what I want to do, if I can, is just Come back and make sure I'm giving you the most considered response possible. In case I'm missing anything, because this is this is too important not to
12: not to get right. Uh, finally, Mr. Secretary, your staff identified the critical role that civilian, uh, foreign law enforcement, and military personnel play in establishing secure communication networks. Congress provided the authority through the Digital Connectivity and Cybersecurity Partnership and the Economic Support Fund to work with all of these groups with uh, FY23 funds, but not, as I understand it, for the rollover of earlier funds. Uh, I look forward to working with my colleagues, particularly those on the State and Foreign Ops Subcommittee to provide the necessary budgetary authority to continue this important work is—is—is is, is that something you would endorse? Um, unless I'm, I'm
2: unless I'm missing something, uh, I, I, I'd welcome that. Um, I don't know if there is something in place that has us covered that I'm not aware of, but at least as, as described, it's something I'd welcome. All right.
12: Thank you. I yield back. Thanks, Senator Shaheen.
13: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Secretary. It's nice to see you again. It's nice to have two opportunities today to ask about what's happening in the world. Um, I want to start with Belarus because earlier today, um, the Free Belarus Caucus had um, a press conference with Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who is the pro-democracy leader of the movement there. And I think she is courageous and inspiring, and um, they need our help. One of the things we talked about is, given the war in Ukraine and what that has mean, meant for the Belarusian people and the lack of a special envoy for Belarus, there's nobody who can help um, encourage the Europeans and the U.S. to work together or um, serve as a conduit to the opposition movement. So. Can you talk about what you're thinking with respect to a special envoy for Belarus and when when might we see that appointment happen?
2: No, thank you very much, Senator, for raising that. And yes, uh, two things. As you know, day in, day out, we have the, the Vilnius-based, uh, Lithuania-based Belarus Affairs Unit that's uh, embedded in, in our embassy, and they're doing the day-in, day-out contact right. um, because so much, of you know, the Democratic opposition is in, uh, is in Lithuania. But uh, to your point, uh, we're very actively looking at Um, moving forward with the special envoy. What I'm considering right now, looking at, is dual hatting a very senior official in our European Affairs Bureau to also serve as uh, the envoy to be able to uh, then go in and out, uh, engage at senior levels with the uh, the opposition, even as the um, Belarus Affairs Unit that's based in Lithuania does the kind of day-in, day-out engagement.
13: And so do you have a timetable for when you Um, hope to make that
2: happen? I hate to say very soon, but very soon I promise you very soon
13: um, I will hold you to that so um, the next time I see you hopefully it will be done um, I also want to say how pleased I am to see the robust funding for the Western Balkans in the president's budget um, particularly increased funding for Bosnia and Herzegovina um, and also very pleased to see the work that the State Department has done with our European allies to encourage Serbia and Kosovo to come to some agreement. And I wonder if you could talk about what kind of role the Congress might play and whether there are particular incentives that we should be thinking about uh, to ensure that that agreement actually gets implemented.
2: Thank you. Uh, This is, um, I think, a a hopeful thing. That is the progress that's been made uh, between Serbia and, and Kosovo, particularly um, an agreement that was reached uh, just uh, this past weekend uh, to um, implement, with an implementation roadmap, uh, understandings uh, between them on the path to, uh, to normalization. And I think what's significant about it, besides the fact that both countries have n- nominally agreed to do it, uh, is that that's also embedded, those commitments are embedded in their respective uh, European Union accession plans. So that gives them some incentive. Uh, I hope to um, uh, to follow through. We have been, as you pointed out, intimately involved in um, in helping get to this uh, to this result. The European Union has done a very good job. We have been there uh, every single step along the way. Uh, I've engaged uh, both um, uh, Prime Minister Kurty, uh and uh, President Vučić on numerous occasions on this. So I think there's a moment. Uh, there's a there's a positive moment. But to your point, I think it would be tremendously helpful. Um, if in your own engagements with, for example, parliamentarians in both countries, uh, the, the clear support of the Congress of the United States for moving forward and for implementing uh, these uh, agreements, I think, could be critical. And to some extent, uh, for example, um, uh, both ha- leaders have to navigate uh, right. differences of opinion in their legislatures about this. I think uh, your voice on this could, um, uh, could make a real difference. So I'd strongly um, encourage that, as well as in your engagements with the leaders themselves.
13: Um, I certainly think there's a lot of um, interest on the part of the members of this committee in doing that yeah. and thinking about how we can be supportive of the implementation of the yeah. agreement actually happening. One of the issues, as you know, is non-recognition by yeah. a number of European countries is this an issue that you are raising with those five countries, and um, are you seeing any progress?
2: Uh, it's very much an issue that, that we're raising, we'll continue to raise, but I also think this um, agreement, again, if it, assuming it moves forward, actually puts us uh, on a path to, um, toward recognition uh, by these countries. Now, Serbia itself, that may be another matter for some time, but if they get to a normalized relationship, that would... Uh, I think have very positive effects just in the day out, uh, day in day out interactions, and I think we'll eventually get there. But for the five holdout countries, uh, the fact that the that both countries now have reached this agreement, and assuming they implement it, that will I think move them to um, uh, toward recognition.
13: I, I agree. I certainly think it helps, and and I think it's really important for the people in both Kosovo and Serbia to see some benefit to in their personal lives from that kind of an agreement that reduces tensions and hopefully moves both countries towards membership in the EU. Um, On Lebanon, another area where they are facing real challenges, what are we doing to try and encourage um, the government of Lebanon to implement necessary reforms in order to get the IMF to, and the World Bank to support the economic efforts that need to happen there, and what more can we do?
2: This is um, another very significant challenge. That the, re- the reality is, without sugarcoating it, is that the economy is in a tailspin. And um, you've got vacancies in the presidency, uh, in the cabinet. Uh, parliament needs to actually elect uh, a president. That's uh, long in the making. Form a government. And on that basis, be able to actually implement the reforms that were necessary to secure an IMF program. So in part, there's a, a chicken-egg problem here between the necessary movement on the political side and what we believe is vital on the, uh, on the economic side. It really is, as best we can tell, the only way out, the only way to pull back from the precipice. Uh, I don't see an international bailout coming. Uh, I really think the IMF program is critical, but to get to the IMF program, you've got to have a government in place. At the same time, um, we have been a very significant donor of assistance, we continue to to focus um, on livelihood support for two uh, critical institutions: the Lebanese Armed Forces and the Internal Security Forces. These are the um, state guarantors of Lebanon's uh, sovereignty, uh, and um, the, you know they've been incredibly challenged. The value of the dollar equivalent in salary to a member of the Lebanese uh, Armed Forces has uh, declined uh, you know, by 90%. Mm-hmm. So their purchasing power has basically gone to, to zero. That's what we've been trying to shore up. We, it's really important that these institutions stay and stick right. together. It's critical for the, uh, for the state. And, of course, it's critically to, critical to push back against Hezbollah, trying to say, no, we're going to do that because these institutions can't. So we're very, very focused there. Um, and we, of course, have also been focused on some energy um, agreements that uh, we're, we're working to do. Um, and there are a number of, um, of challenges that come with those, but I think um, there is at least some hope on the energy supply side that we're very actively working on. Um, but this
8: is um, uh, usually challenged.
13: Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
8: Senator Scott. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Secretary, thank you for being here today you. and certainly it's been a long day for you, at least listening to all the questions that you're receiving today. I know that Dr. Barrasso spent some time talking about fentanyl and yeah. the prices that we have as a nation. Last month at this hearing, at a hearing here, I had an opportunity to talk about a friend of mine, a former business school dean at the College of Charleston whose son, Alan Shao, his namesake, lost his life to fentanyl on the first use. And... It is hard to think about this crisis simply by thinking about the numbers. Over 70,000 other American families have had a similar experience. These are fathers, brothers, sisters, daughters, all lost because of fentanyl. And I know that you spoke sometime with Dr. Barrasso about the importance of Mexico and precursors from China and the approach that we should take with the Mexican cartels. I'd like for you to illuminate some of the work that we're doing, because as I look through the the budget, uh, I I don't see, I see a lot in the form of technical assistance, but I I don't see a lasting commitment to confronting this challenge. And Secretary, I know that you know that just a few weeks ago, a few South Carolinians were kidnapped and some died at the hands of the Mexican cartels. So we take this issue seriously as a nation, but at home, this is a sensitive and serious issue. I'd like to know what we're doing from an all-of-government approach, not simply your department, but seeing it from a panoramic view, number one. Number two, what else can be done with Mexico? Number three, I know that there are times when fentanyl could literally be shipped from China straight to America. What can we do to cut that off?
2: Yeah. Th- thank you very much, Senator, and I— could not, look, could not agree with you more. I deeply share this concern, and I think you're exactly right that it's so important to put uh, a name and a face to it because yes. these numbers become abstractions, uh, and you know, uh, hopefully we'd be galvanized by the fact that it is the number one killer of Americans aged 18 to 49, Amazing. but it does come down to these individual stories. And I also fully agree with you that we have to have, and I believe we do have, a comprehensive approach that uh, here at home, I, I mentioned, We're, of course, working, as we always need to, on the demand side, on the treatment side, on the antidote side. Um, That's vitally important, but, of course, that doesn't answer the problem. It's a necessary component of it. Second, we talked a little bit about this with Senator Barrasso. On the border itself, we do have um, good technology that can better detect the efforts to smuggle uh, pills that are produced uh, in uh, in Mexico and brought over the border. Because 95% of this is coming through legal ports of entry. It's not being smuggled uh, across points of the border that are, are you know, uh, in between points of entry, but at the points of entry, there is the technology that can better detect that. Third, yes, though,
8: on that point, please is there, is there high utilization of the technology that we have? So I think it's,
2: uh, as, as I understand it, um, and this is not, I don't want to speak, try to speak authoritatively because it's beyond my area of yes. expertise, but as I understand it, you know, we've been working uh, as a government over several years now, um, uh, over a couple of administrations to deploy this technology. It's been a little slower than I think everyone would have liked. It's now speeding up. Uh, And in fact, uh, there was a a very interesting piece, uh, I think a week or two ago on the Washington Post, laying out some of the work that's being done. But we need to press the accelerator on that because the technology is effective. When I was last in Mexico with President Biden, one of the things that we talked about with President Lopez Obrador was the deployment of this technology as well on the Mexican side uh, of the border. So that's two. Three, to your point, Um, we have to... Press even harder on the accelerator in the work that we're doing jointly uh, and supporting Mexico in doing in breaking up these cartels, breaking up the finance networks, taking down the labs. Of course, it's not just the precursors of the pills themselves. It's the pill presses uh, that uh, are fabricated and that come across all that. Now, uh, in in fairness, they are making a very significant effort, um, and uh, they have put far more resources into this. Um, They have um, actually... Uh, done a, you know, uh, an, an effective job in disbanding, uh, disrupting uh, labs, but uh, and and um, uh, arresting dozens of high-ranking officials in these cartels. But you know, these labs, as you know, can fit in
8: a room. Pop back up.
2: Yeah, just pop yeah. back up. So that's challenge. But there's another one. Last thing I know. Uh, two I don't two want questions to with
8: two minutes left. So yeah, if quickly, we wrap up.
2: The other big piece I mentioned is yes. internationally. One of the big problems is the diversion of perfectly legal precursors into illicit use in making fentanyl. We've, we have seized the G20, the largest economies in the world. Uh, we just had a foreign minister's meeting. I got put on the agenda as a, a, an action item for the G20, uh, building out a coalition to try to deal more effectively with this. And what does that mean? It means simply, among other things, that working with the private sectors in all of these countries, um, we do a better job sharing information about diversion, get a, getting better labeling on uh, legal precursors that then get Diverted and making sure that um, there's a program in place so that you know your customer. Uh, If you're shipping a chemical, you actually know where it's going. You put all of these pieces together, I think you can have a greater impact.
8: Thank you. According to the uh, recent report from the IAEA, Iran is getting dangerously close to having weapons-grade plutonium. Last month, the agency reported the discovery of uranium particles enriched up to 84%, 6% below the threshold necessary to create a nuclear weapon. Given the regime's brutal crackdown against peaceful protesters and their own efforts to sabotage negotiations to most people in the room, it seems clear that negotiating a new JCPOA should be completely off the table. From my perspective, I hope that's yours as well. What practical steps are you taking to work with our allies and partners to actually address this threat, especially given the fact that certain sanction requirements are about to lapse?
2: Thank you. Well, as a a practical matter, uh, the JCPOA is not on the table at this moment, uh, in large part because as we were working in good faith to see if we could get a mutual return to compliance uh, by Iran and by the United States, uh, the Iranians uh, rejected uh, a proposal that was on the table put forward by the European Union, uh, by our European partners, actually uh, endorsed even by uh, Russia and China. They rejected that uh, last summer, and uh, they have not demonstrated seriousness in that. We were determined one way or another – that Iran not acquire a nuclear weapon. I have to tell you, we continue to believe that in terms of getting an effective result, uh, diplomacy is still the most effective way to do that, but it takes two uh, to tango, as we would say, and the Iranians have not demonstrated seriousness of purpose. Meanwhile, um, we are um, working in close concert with uh, allies and partners. I was talking about this a little bit earlier. Uh, I think we now have um, uh, a much more shared perspective uh, on this challenge. I think minds have also been galvanized by what's happened in the streets of Iran over the last uh, six or nine months, by the provision by Iran to Russia of uh, drone technology for the war of aggression uh, against Ukraine. And all of that has brought countries closer together in trying to deal with some of these egregious actions.
8: I know I'm out of time, but short question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll try and be short. Uh, U.S. embassies in Africa, yeah. there's a sh- shortage of, of staff. Uh, what are you doing about it? And frankly, you think about the CCP and its uh, issues and its growth through its Belt and Road projects. Seems like we need to have more focus on Africa than we have. I know that you've done, uh, you've had some work with the African Leaders Summit. Love to hear your thoughts on A, the shortage, and B, strategy.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. This is something we're very actively working on. This shortage is a, is a problem. Uh, actually, in the budget, we have increased dollars for additional hires. That will help. In part, it won't solve the problem, but it will help address the problem. Uh, we're also reviewing why some of our posts uh, don't receive sufficient bids because, as you know, the way this works in part is our foreign service officers say, hey, here's where I want to go. And we've seen um, in a number of countries, uh, the bids just aren't there. We're trying to understand why that is and then to see what we can do to incentivize people to serve in posts that, uh, for one reason or another, have not been attracting the Thank uh, you. personnel they deserve. Yes, sir.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Senator Cardin.
14: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, it's always a pleasure to have you before the committee. Thank you very much for your service. Uh, Let me um, start with an issue that Senator Menendez raised in his opening comments, and that is the capacity of the State Department to meet the challenges that we have globally. I think never in our history have we had so many global challenges in which the work of the State Department can be critically important for us achieving our objectives. Senator Haggerty and I have worked together uh, in regards to the State Department's capacity to deal with these issues. We made several recommendations in the last Congress uh, that were enacted into law. I know that you've been questioned on this before the Appropriations Committee, but I want to get our committee engaged on these issues as well. In that recommendations, some were more short-term changes that we thought should be made as quickly as possible, including dealing with the training capacity at the State Department by having a board of visitors, by making it a more professional uh, educational experience, by expanding training opportunities. We thought these are proposals that could be implemented in the short term. Others were longer term issues, and that's why we recommended a commission which is now in the process of being named. Uh, And I would like to get your Uh, understanding uh, about how to implement these changes. They were done, I think, with full support and cooperation from from the leadership at the State Department. Uh, We know you always have challenges. Uh, Part of this is going to be budgetary. For people to go into training, you have to to be able to backfill those positions. That's not always available. So, So tell me how you think you can use the tools that we made available in the last Congress to implement these changes, and what we can do to help you uh, moving forward?
2: Well, first, let me just say how much I appreciate uh, the work that you've done on this and the leadership on it. It is usually important to the future of the department. It's usually important to our ability to attract but also retain the best talent. And we're in a competition uh, for talent, and we need to make sure that we have the tools not just to recruit people, but to make sure that they stay at the department. I think a big part of that is career-long learning. Um, because, as we've been talking about uh, in many ways, uh, things are changing so fast that unless you're able uh, to, as an institution, make sure that your people have the, uh, the ability to continuously um, uh, upgrade their game, uh, you're not going to be able to do the job. Now, I think some of the uh, tools, authorities, resources provided by Congress to us are making a big difference. For example, uh, over the last couple of years, And now in our budget, I hope uh, that will be realized this year, uh, we've been able to hire a significantly greater number uh, of people, both uh, Foreign Service Officers as well as civil servants. That has tremendous benefits, uh, one of which, of course, is making sure that when uh, we have uh, gaps in places, we have the personnel to fill them. But one of the most critical, um, I think, initiatives we're taking is making sure that we have a significant float of personnel by which we can pull out of day-in, day-out service someone, put them into a training program of some kind, whether it's one that we're doing ourselves, time at an academic institution, time, by the way, here in Congress, and do it in a way that doesn't disrupt the day-in-day activities of the the department. That's a big uh, initiative. We now have real resources to do that in ways we never had before. Second, uh, you talked about the short term. I couldn't agree more. We just spent um, uh, a morning with um, the Foreign Service Institute leadership on new programs they're putting in place for both... Incoming, but also mid-career uh, learning, particularly in areas that uh, the department has not, uh, you know, in the past usually been, been focused on and where we need to have um, critical skills and have people develop them. So you will see and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll share with you, I think, some very significant initiatives that are creating important opportunities for career-long learning developed by the, the Foreign Service Institute that we'll be actually implementing very, very soon. Uh, so there are a host of things that I think will make a real difference. I think the um, uh, moving out on the, on the Board of Visitors, on the provost, we are, uh, we're doing that. Uh, we're preparing actually the position description for the provost as we speak so that we can begin the hiring process. Sure. Uh, we're actually leveraging the results of some, I think, important assessments in terms of what we're looking for and what we need. And we're on track to have the uh, Board of Visitors um, identified and recruited by the end of this year.
14: And in, in regards to the commission, yeah. some were appointed by the Congress, but some were appointed by the administration. Uh, is, is that advancing on the administration side?
2: Yes, and I think um, not only is it advancing, I believe uh, that we've asked, actually, your respective teams for, for recommendations. Uh, and uh, we really look to that. And um, I, I also believe that um, we actually have the resources, even within our existing authorities, to, uh, to move forward on that.
14: Part of this uh, in training deals with an area that I've talked about frequently with you, and that is our anti-corruption efforts. Yeah. The president's talked about that as a National Security core concern. Uh, we find that one of the resistance we, we get to being more active in establishing international standards on corruption is the capacity of our missions, particularly in country, to be able to evaluate and move forward on anti-corruption programs. Are you taking steps to improve the capacity at the State Department to deal with this priority area?
2: Yeah, we've really, we've really elevated this. As you know, we have a, uh, we put in place a senior official who is charged with this responsibility. And one of the things that um, I've been working on, and I think it's important across the institution, is, you know, we do a lot as an institution that is uh, top-down, uh, we do some that's bottom-up, probably need to do more, where we really need uh, to be doing more is horizontally across the institution, by which I mean this, on um, on anti-corruption, this needs to be embedded horizontally in all of our different bureaus, in our regional bureaus, but also as well in some of our functional bureaus. So what I've been pushing is for the senior official and his team responsible for dealing with anti-corruption to be engaged um, on the takeoff, not just on the landing, with different colleagues across the enterprise so that they have um, the focus, and they also dedicate the, the time and resources within their areas of responsibility to making combating corruption one of their responsibilities. So I think we're making progress there. Um, I'm sure we can, do, we can do more, but I'm very seized with this mission because something that you've been leading on for, for, for many, many years. It's, there are a few things that are more corrosive uh,
14: of democratic systems than corruption. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you. Senator Hegarty.
15: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm going to take a minute for my National Security Advisor, Bobby Zarati, to put up a photo, a photo that concerns me very much, and I'm certain it, it does you as well, Mr. Secretary, probably all of us here. It's a photo of CCP diplomat Wang Yi uh, with Iranian and Saudi officials. It's not a good thing. It's the anti-Abraham Accords, in my view. What it's doing is it depicts the normalization of relations with Iran, Rather than our ally Israel, it's certainly not a situation that I think that Saudi Arabia and Iran would have come to of their own accord. So my question to you, Mr. Secretary, is what exactly did Communist China promise to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and to Iran to get them to come to this agreement?
2: So, Senator, I think there's a there's a backstory here, and uh, I think it's um, in some sense a little a little bit more complicated. The um, Saudis and the uh, Iranians have been talking for the better part of the last couple of years, uh, including in Oman, including in Baghdad, uh, to look to see if they could get back to where they were before they uh, interrupted their diplomatic relations. You remember uh, the Saudis put to death a prominent Shia cleric. Uh, That resulted in um, a protest or storming of the Saudi embassy in Tehran. They broke off diplomatic relations, I think, back in 2016. Um, But in the last couple of years, not a couple of months, they've been looking to see if they could get back to a slightly more uh, normal place. And uh, based on the information we have, I think uh, what China did, uh, you know, in a sense uh, cleverly, was to uh, at the very end of that process, uh, take advantage of the work that these countries had done, and then basically host the conclusion of the agreement that they reached to restore diplomatic relations. Not to um, uh, bring it together themselves. They just happen to be uh, the host uh, mm. of it, uh, and I think it, you know, sent a, uh, a diplomatic signal. There's no doubt about that. I have to say, I um, I see some positives to this as well as some concerns. The positives are these: if and there's a big if here because we really don't know if the commitments uh, made under this agreement will actually be implemented. That really mm. remains to be seen, and we've seen in the past. That Iran has promised to do things that, of course, it's not done. But if they do, and principally, if they cease or reduce their support to the Houthi rebels in Yemen, who, among other things, are attacking yeah. Saudi Arabia and helping to um, perpetuate a war in Yemen, if that if that stops or de- decreases, that can be beneficial. It can be beneficial to ending the war in Yemen. It can be beneficial to uh, helping defend uh, or. Uh, make sure that Saudi Arabia is not under attack. There are 80,000 Americans in Saudi Arabia. We have an interest in that, too. So it's a long way of saying, if this results in the curbing of some of Iran's malicious activities, I actually don't think that's a bad thing. By the way, it does not in any way uh, substitute for uh, our determination to pursue the deepening as well as the expansion of the Abraham Accords. I had a long discussion with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu about this when I was uh, recently in Israel. Uh, we're very focused on that, and I, I also don't think it will change the um, uh, interests of other countries in pursuing that.
15: To go back to the photo itself, though, I, I think the image itself suggests to me that China may be trying to pull our ally, Saudi Arabia, into their orbit, mm-hmm. along with Russia and Iran. Um, it also suggests to me that China may be laying the groundwork for uh, you know a, a Petro-Wan environment rather than the, to replace the petrodollar. Uh, I think this is something that would... Re- benefit from a deeper conversation with you, perhaps a conversation in closed session, and I might ask the chairman and ranking member if we could arrange that at some point Mm -hmm. soon. I think that would be beneficial. Um, I'd like to show another image that is also quite concerning. This is an image of CCP General Secretary Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin who recently held high-profile meetings in Moscow. This is also not a good thing. In a video released overnight, Chairman Xi tells Putin that Communist China and Russia are going to be pushing for changes not seen for 100 years. And I'd like to, to know, Mr. Secretary, what changes not seen for 100 years is Xi Jinping talking about? And would that be detrimental to U.S. national security interests? What impact would those changes have on U.S. national security interests?
2: Well, I think it's, it's no secret that both countries uh, have a very different worldview than our own, or for that matter, a different worldview than Uh, dozens and dozens of uh, our allies and partners around the world. And in particular, uh, they have a different view of what a uh, a world order and rules of the road should look like uh, than we do. And I think when it comes to China, they actually want a world order, but an illiberal one. Mm -hmm. We continue to stand strongly for a liberal one. I'm not sure that Russia or uh, Vladimir Putin wants a world order, maybe more like world disorder. Uh, But um, in part, as a result of having this very different worldview than we do, um, they have um, a marriage of convenience. I'm not sure if it's conviction. Russia is very much the junior partner in this relationship. Uh, and uh, we've seen that, uh, again, on display, quite literally, uh, right here before us. Recall, as, as you know, right before the Russian aggression against Ukraine, they had a, they had a meeting. They talked about a, a partnership with no limits. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen further expression of that. But um, as they've been doing this, We have been, um, over the last two years, re-energizing, rejuvenating, re-engaging all of our alliances and partnerships uh, and in ways that are paying tremendous dividends, both in dealing with the Russian aggression against uh, Ukraine and in dealing with some of the challenges posed by China. We have greater convergence today uh, with uh, allies and partners in Europe as well as in Asia on how to deal with those challenges uh, than we've had, uh, certainly uh, in my memory. And besides doing that, we've also created new collections New coalitions of countries that are kind of more fit for purpose on individual issues. I mentioned earlier the mineral security partnership, where we're getting countries together. Yeah,
15: to try I'm going to have to that, ca- just yeah. because go of the ahead, time, please. I have to go to my next question. But, but, but this is a topic we've discussed in the past. I know you've discussed it with me, my colleagues today, and that has to do with fentanyl yeah. and the ravages that it's creating on on, on America. Um, in the we spoke about this a year ago, and since we spoke about it. How many sanctions have been placed on Chinese individuals or entities that are involved in the fentanyl trade?
2: Um, what we've been working to do, the aspect of, the, of, of China that is deeply problematic, as you know, when it comes to fentanyl, is the production in China precursors mm-hmm. that, get, that then become used uh, in, the, in the production of fentanyl. And we have uh, had sought To try to get uh, China to, uh, in a cooperative way, because it's actually in their interest to do this, uh, to deal more effectively in cracking down on the uh, diversion of those precursors.
15: I mean, interrupt just in the interest of time. I understand that you've sought to do so, but it's not worked. And in fact, there have been zero sanctions issued since you and I talked about this. How hard would it be for President Biden to pick the phone up and call President Xi Jinping tomorrow and lay out a set of consequences, including sanctions, that are going to be delivered upon China if they don't stop sending fentanyl and fentanyl precursors here to kill our youth? 70,000 young people a year are dying at this. 23 times the deaths associated with the 9-11 attacks. This is a war on our youth. We've got to do something about it. Mr.
2: Uh, and uh, like you, I am very seized with this, including in my own engagements with, uh, with Chinese counterparts and Chinese officials. Uh, we've made very clear to them, uh, that we need to see this cooperation on dealing with synthetic opioids and fentanyl, uh, and if that cooperation is not forthcoming, uh, we're going to have to look at other steps that we can take. We want it, what we want to do is to make sure that we are being as effective as possible. One of the challenges when it comes to, as I mentioned, uh, China is that uh, what often happens uh, is perfectly, as you know, legal chemicals, precursors, get diverted either intentionally or unintentionally mm. in some cases to the illicit production uh, of fentanyl. There are Um, agreements, systems, procedures that we want to put in place, which is why I seized the G20 with this just uh, a few weeks ago and now have agreement from the G20, uh, which includes China, leading countries, economies in the world, uh, to work on this together. For example, much better information sharing, labeling, know your customer, so that at least when it comes to the unintentional diversion of these precursors, uh, we're doing something about that. Now, if it's intentional, that, of course, is a different matter. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Van Hollen.
16: Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, good to see you this afternoon. I you
2: know, thank you for your
16: testimony this morning uh, in appropriations. And uh, for the benefit of Chairman Menendez, um, I thank the Secretary for the implementation of the Foreign Service Families Act that we passed a couple years ago. And, Mr. Chairman, thank you for your help in uh, getting that through the United States uh, Congress. Uh, we also uh, discussed uh, the meeting that took place that was just portrayed in this uh, photograph uh, between mm-hmm. – Uh, Putin and Xi, and Mr. Secretary, uh, you underscored what I think is an imperative that we be prepared, fully prepared, if China provides material military support uh, to Russia to work in concert with our allies to immediately uh, impose very tough economic uh, sanctions. Um, And I know work's being done to make sure we're ready uh, to do that. I understand the issue of uh, the Critical Minerals Security Partnership uh, was raised here, so I won't yeah. go over that. Uh, I do want to follow through on, on a couple issues that were raised at this morning's hearing, one by my colleague, Senator Schatz, on the issue of press freedom, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I appreciate very much uh, the State Department Human Rights Report, and I appreciate the fact that it is insulated, mm-hmm. I think, to the extent possible and, and pretty well. political forces. I know what a challenge that is. Um, I do want to just raise concerns about uh, crackdown on freedom of the press in two countries uh, where I hope we will continue to have strong relations with. Um, One is a country I've spent a lot of time in, uh, a member of the Quad, and that's India. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at recent uh, reports, there's a significant crackdown on press freedom in India. It is the world's largest democracy, but this is very, very Uh, troubling. Um, The other is neighboring Pakistan, which at times has had a very vibrant press, but right now we're seeing a critical crackdown. And I just want to point out that the State Department Human rights Rights Report, which was just released Monday, indicates that both India and Pakistan have seen increasing threats on press freedom. Both countries are increasingly dangerous places for journalists trying to do their jobs. Um, And the State Department is not alone in this, Uh, other organizations uh, that are out there to protect freedom of the press uh, have indicated both these countries have serious problems. Uh, Reporters Without Borders ranks India 150 out of 180, and Pakistan 157 out of 180. So uh, I'm not going to go into great detail today, but I am interested in following up with you and your team uh, on uh, those, those issues. Um, I do want to pick up on our earlier conversation uh, today uh, about some concerning actions taken uh, by the government of Israel as we work to try to create um, a a period of time where we can Mm -hmm. de-escalate. And this morning, uh, you agreed that the recent action uh, taken by the Knesset really just yesterday – Uh, that rolled back uh, the agreement made more than 20 years ago by Israel to evacuate four settlements uh, was inconsistent uh, with the obligations that the government of Israel has taken on in Aqaba uh, and Shurim Sheik. Uh, And I I think we need to press those issues on both sides whenever we see violations of this agreement. Um, I, I do want to talk about certain elements of the new government which uh, are really extreme forces within this government. Um, One of them is Ben-Gavir, the other is Smotrich. Ben-Gavir is the, and and these are not backbenchers. They're not backbenchers, they have very important responsibilities within this new government. Ben-Gavir is the Minister of National Security in charge of statewide law enforcement and the Israeli police. Smotrich is the Minister of Finance and also, as you know, Minister in the Defense Ministry that has authority over civilian issues in the West Bank, including illegal construction and authority over planning and construction for settlements. Just a few days ago, Smotrich commented as follows that there is no such thing as Palestinians, because there is no such thing as a Palestinian people. This was condemned by Biden administration officials. And Mr. Secretary, you're here today. Do you join in condemning that comment? I do. And this is not the first time, right, that that Smotrich has made these very incendiary comments, incitements to violence. It was just a few weeks ago uh, where he stated in reference to the Palestinian village of Hawara, that it needs to be, quote, wiped out, unquote, and that, quote, the state of Israel should do it, unquote. Now, I agree with uh, President Biden as a longtime supporter of the U.S.-Israel relationship that it's been built on interests and built on values. You have to agree, Mr. Secretary, that those comments by Smotrich Minister of Finance, and somebody who has an important portfolio over the West Bank, those do not reflect our values, do they?
14: Uh,
2: they do not. And I would also point out that uh, the the second comment you alluded to on Hawara, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, insisted that uh, the person in question walk uh, those comments back, which he did, right. for what that's worth. Um, I, I'd also note that the legislation you referred to, which, again, we uh, think is – indeed, inconsistent with uh, commitments made and, in fact, uh, inconsistent with longstanding commitments because those were uh, commitments undertaken, I believe, during the Bush administration. Yeah. Um, my understanding is that Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, has uh, has said that uh, they have uh, no intention of actually, the government, this, this was a Knesset um, uh, law, has no intention of actually moving forward okay. on um, the authorities that it's been, Okay. apparently given.
16: So, so, Mr. Secretary, all of this raises the, the issue that, uh, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu says he has two hands on the steering wheel, mm-hmm. meaning that he's in control of this government. But we're looking at actions his ministers are taking and actions in portfolios that are very significant that go directly contrary to that. And Prime Minister Netanyahu, as we discussed this morning, specifically himself disavowed The agreement reached in ACABA within 24 hours of it having been reached. So I just go back to make my final point I did this morning, um, which is uh, I appreciate the statements that have been made by Biden administration officials. I think, Mr. Secretary, it's important for you personally also to continue to speak out. And I think we look weak when we see time after time actions taken inconsistent with our positions with no consequence at all. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank Thank you. Senator Cruz.
17: Thank you Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Senator, good to see you. You have spoken passionately and I believe honestly about your commitment to helping Ukraine defeat Vladimir Putin. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly that it is an important national security interest of the United States for Russia to lose. Putin is a KGB thug who seeks to reassemble the Soviet empire at the expense of American interests and, sa- and at the expense of the safety and security of Americans. And of course, in China, she is watching closely to see how America responds to Putin's aggression. I'm deeply concerned, however, that no matter how much you may want to help Ukraine, there is something the Biden administration wants more, which is to reenter a nuclear agreement with Iran. This administration has shown weakness on Iran since day one and continues to do so. Just in the last few weeks, there have been reports that you again waived congressional sanctions to allow Iraq to move money to the Central Bank of Iran, which the Ayatollah uses for terrorism, for ballistic missile development, and nuclear weapons work. Of course, that's not all Iran is doing. In January, Mr. Secretary, you publicly assessed that Iran had become, quote, Russia's top military backer. That's a quote. Mm-hmm. And indeed, Russia uses Iranian banks and tankers and planes to move weapons and to dodge sanctions. Yet the administration and the State Department in particular continue to allow Russia-Iranian cooperation out of a refusal to crack down on Iran. Iran. The Biden administration is boosting, and in many cases, funding, both sides of this war. If you look at energy, and I want to start with this, I want to ask you about the use by Russia of Iranian oil tankers. As you know, Iran violates U.S. energy sanctions by using its own tankers, as well as a ghost fleet of foreign flagships. You've allowed that ghost fleet to grow dramatically. The Iranians were using about 70 tankers when President Biden was elected. Today, they're using about 300 tankers. You did not sanction those tankers. Instead, the administration allowed Iran to restore its energy exports, getting above 1 million barrels a day, which is funding the regime and funding the war on Ukraine last month was the highest oil exports Iran has had since 2018. Now, we can argue about what that means for Iran, but I want to ask what it means for Ukraine and for Russia. Russia is now using dozens and dozens of tankers from that ghost fleet that the administration allowed to grow in violation of our energy sanctions directly to aid Putin's aggression in Ukraine. Why hasn't the Biden administration sanctioned them? Uh, Senator, two things. First,
2: going back to the, uh, to the first point, um, the symbiotic relationship that we're seeing emerge between Iran uh, and Russia, to include the provision by Iran of drone technology to Russia for use in Ukraine, and the provision by Russia uh, to Iran, or the threatened provision of weapon systems, including uh, planes, uh, this is something that we are very actively and aggressively working to, uh, to break up. Uh, across the government, uh, we have gone after the uh, drone network working to uh, sanction uh, dozens of individuals. Have you reimposed the oil sanctions? And we are looking at the most effective way we can to get at the ghost ghost fleet. So we have imposed sanctions across the entire UAV network. Uh, We're looking at how we can most effectively deal with the ghost fleet. Have you stopped the Ayatollah from selling a
17: million barrels a day of oil? We're working on making sure that we can do that effectively. It was done in the prior administration. It was this administration that refused to enforce those sanctions that allowed billions of dollars to flow to the Ayatollah that's being used to attack the Ukrainians right now. We're
2: working every day to enforce the existing sanctions on Iran, even as we're looking uh, at imposing new ones.
17: Mr. Secretary, with respect, that's not remotely true. The oil sanctions you could enforce tomorrow, but it is a political decision not to enforce it, and you are providing the funds that Iran is using to provide drones that are attacking Ukrainian military, attacking Ukrainian civilians. You said you just noticed recently the growing cooperation between Russia and Iran. If you were not aware of that two years ago, this administration has not been paying attention. Let's talk, for example, about Russian-Iranian nuclear cooperation. President Zelensky has repeatedly said that Russia is compensating Iran for weapons through nuclear cooperation. Last year, you signed waivers specifically related to the Iran nuclear deal that suspended congressional sanctions against Russia and Iran, conducting exactly this kind of nuclear cooperation. You recently renewed these waivers. President Zelensky is right. You know that so much so that in your recent transmissions you wrote to Congress that previous waivers you had issued, quote, would expand Iran's nuclear programs and further deepen cooperation between Iran and Russia at a time that Iran is providing lethal aid to Russia for its use and its illegal invasion in Ukraine. But you didn't cancel the waivers. Instead, you signed them, enabling broad Russia-Iranian nuclear cooperation. Why did you sign these waivers and why did you do so repeatedly? Um, These waivers have been in the
2: nonproliferation interest of the United States, particularly to make sure that materials that Iran could use to develop uh, its nuclear program uh, were shipped uh, out of Iran and to make sure that uh, facilities uh, in Iran uh, would not be developed in a way that could lead to to further proliferation or the advancement of the program. Uh, In the last uh, instance... Uh, we have narrowed uh, the, uh, the waivers significantly, again, to make sure that they're focused only on activities that actually advance our nonproliferation goals. To make M- sure Mr. That Iran-
17: Secretary, with all due respect, that, that, that answer does, does not pass the laugh test. Under this administration, you have allowed Iran to get to the brink of a nuclear weapon. There's no work being conducted to make the program safer. Russia's on the side of Iran, and Iran is on the side of Russia. They're both against us. And it's staggering that the Biden administration would say Russia's still on our side trying to constrain Iran. These, You could halt this cooperation, you could halt the, the civilian nuclear cooperation with Russia, you could halt the oil sales, but this administration is not willing to do so because of politics, and as a result... The billions of dollars the Ayatollah is getting because of your decisions and President Biden's decisions are funding the war in Ukraine. Why why is this administration funding both sides of this war? I I fundamentally disagree
2: with that judgment, Senator. Uh, We had Iran's nuclear program in a box. Unfortunately, it got out of that box as a result of pulling out, not by us, uh, of the nuclear agreement. Uh, As a result, despite the maximum pressure that's been exerted by the Would you answer the question I asked, By why are you funding both sides of that the war? That nuclear program has moved forward. Would We've you answer the question,
17: why are you funding both sides of the Ukraine war? We're not, we're, not, we're not funding both sides. We're trying
2: to make sure, wherever we can, that we're pushing back on Iran, having access to, to resources. But you're we're not going to stop the oil sales? We're, we're, we're looking at the most effective way to deal with the
17: Enforce the, the sanctions. It's not complicated. Senator Booker.
5: Mr. Secretary, it's good to Senator. see you. And I want to thank you again for having uh, members of this committee over uh, to the State Department. I thought it was a really productive conversation. Uh, I just want to jump in uh, first and foremost just about food security in general. Uh, The Black Sea Grain Initiative was extended on March 18th. Uh, It gives me a lot of hope, but for only 60 days, unfortunately. And half of that time period uh, stipulated uh, really in the original agreement makes me have some concerns. Uh, Relief agencies themselves, as you know, have been expressing disappointment in the shortened duration, stressing that a lot of the countries in East Africa uh, um, will be entering the lean season and have a lot of crises. I know negotiations to allow for the safe passage of commercial ships carrying Ukrainian agricultural exports from the Black Sea have really been facing challenges. We know that uh, the Russians are Uh, doing a lot of things to slow down the processes. They've created backlogs, uh, and there's been a a significant drop. I know you're aware of all this. Can you just help uh, me better understand uh, the importance of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, uh, how the administration is working to ensure Russia fully meets uh, its obligations, and have you started to work with other countries dependent upon Russia and and Ukraine grain to become more uh, food sovereign and independent? Yeah.
2: So, uh, a couple of things. Thank you, Senator, for raising that. Um, it's hard to overstate the importance of the uh, Black Sea Grain Corridor. As you know uh, well, Ukraine uh, had been, before the Russian aggression, uh, one of the main breadbaskets of the world, including um, Africa. Um, and the, one of the results of the Russian aggression, of course, was to uh, disrupt significantly its export of grain of wheat. The Black Sea Grain Corridor – has been a, it never should have been necessary in the first place because it was only necessary because Russia was blocking exports out of Ukraine, blocking the port of Odessa, but uh, once put in place was a significant success, uh, getting out about 24 million metric tons uh, of grain uh, uh, from Ukraine, uh, the equivalent of 8 billion loaves of bread. Uh, The vast majority of that was going to the global south. Uh, It's had a direct impact, by the way, when I was just in Ethiopia, I saw large bags sacks of Ukrainian uh, grain that were there as a result of the black Sea grain corridor initiative so it's imperative that uh, it be um, sustained uh, there is a renewal but uh, the Russians continue to manipulate it and play with it the number of ships as you mentioned that are actually allowed to go through uh, they have been uh, playing games with so that uh, the, the number of ships is is smaller uh, we're pushing every day on the on the UN uh, and with the UN and others to make sure that not only is it sustained but Uh, It's allowed to operate efficiently and effectively. However, even with that, um, we have been seized with the um, global food crisis and global food insecurity in two ways, uh, and very quickly. One is, of course, dealing with the emergency problem that so many countries are facing. Over the last year, we provided, on top of what we were already doing, an additional $13.5 billion uh, to advance um, uh, food security around the world and to deal with emergency situations. We're by far the largest donor to the World Food Program. We pr- provide about fifty percent of its and, budget.
5: And do you think that the fiscal year uh twenty twenty four request of I think it's about five billion dollars, yep. if I'm getting this right, is, is that enough? Uh, so uh,
2: I want to say at this point I I believe it is, but this is um a you know a perfect storm in so many ways that could that could guess worse. So we want to make sure that we retain the, the the flexibility. We have the Feed the Future program which is dealing with With the longer-term aspect of this, which is well-funded and uh, is in the budget, this is helping countries actually build their own sustainable, productive capacity, not just have to rely on emergency assistance.
5: Can I dig deeper in your recent trip to Ethiopia? You you said that both sides have been uh, uh, guilty, really, of war crimes. We see a nation that is going to have a lot of challenges ahead of it. Um, Millions of people are in need of assistance Mm -hmm. right now, and the security situation remains volatile and will probably be contributed uh, to that insecurity will, will be the, the, the sheer needs of the populations. Um, uh, I, I know the administration is working with UN and other partners to, to meet the, this unbelievable humanitarian crisis, but I guess I want to ask you is, um, are we putting enough resources? I guess the FY24 budget requests $286 million for Ethiopia and $331 million for new humanitarian assistance uh, I'm just curious, as you engage with people on the ground, are we doing enough in terms of helping that country get up off its knees after this horrific uh, crisis and humanitarian crisis? So, um, uh, one, I believe
2: that uh, that we are, but I also believe and hope that we'll actually be able to do more. And partly that is dependent on um, Ethiopia following through on the usually important agreement that was reached for the cessation of hostilities in Tigray. Um, uh, we, we're not erasing the last couple of years, and in fact, as you, as you noted, we just announced the other day uh, that uh, it's our assessment that all sides have committed uh, atrocities, uh, and we detail those. But the agreement that was reached has resulted in this. The guns are silent. Humanitarian assistance is flowing to the north. Services are being restored. Uh, the Eritreans have pulled back and are pulling out. Um, the uh, TPLF has put down its heavy weapons, they're standing up an interim administration, and there is the beginnings of a transitional justice process in place that Prime Minister Abiy is, um, is supporting and advancing. What I, what I told him when I saw him was, as they move down this road and implement the very important decisions have made, that will allow us and presumably allow Congress to support uh, greater renewed engagement with Ethiopia, Uh, greater, renewed support, both in terms of our own assistance programs, um, some of which... uh, Now, I will say, despite the the last two years, when when it comes to basic humanitarian assistance in Ethiopia, we've sustained uh, virtually all of it. But there are other things uh, that can be done on an economic level that would really benefit uh, Ethiopia, and as it travels this path of um, peace, of um, accountability, uh, of uh, reconciliation, Uh, We'll be able to do that. The international financial institutions as well are looking at how they can re-engage.
5: Can I just really quickly, I know it's a priority for you about uh, diversity and inclusion, and I really appreciate the conversations we've had since before you were even confirmed. Uh, uh, In July, a GAO report analyzing the department's uh, DEIA practices uh, provided a lot of recommendations Mm -hmm. in short. Um, can you speak to how the department plans to to uh, continue to use the funding requested for the DIA office and how the department's implementation uh, to these kind of priorities is going to go forward? And again, has the work that you've been doing uh, in your retention unit informed your department's budget request for priorities? Can you, can you just give me some more?
2: Yes, in fact, So, the, uh, and thank you for raising the retention unit. First, let me just say very quickly, um, this has been... From day one, and it goes back, um, Mr. Chairman, to um, when this committee was uh, uh, good enough to, to confirm me, I made a commitment that um, I, would be, uh, I would see uh, a marker of my success or not in this job, whether or not the institution made uh, real progress in building an institution that actually reflects the country that we're there to, to represent. So this has been a, a priority of mine from day one. Uh, We established the office of the CDIO, the uh, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Office, never had that before, reports directly to me. We have a five-year strategic plan that was put in place. We have, for the first time, disaggregated data that looks across every office of the department so we have a clear picture of where we are and uh, where we're not. We have senior officers from every bureau at the Deputy Assistant Secretary level who are assigned to carry this portfolio in their bureaus. From the very beginning of the pipeline to the end of the pipeline, that is from recruitment, all the way to promotion uh, and advancement. With a retention in the middle, uh, we are intensely uh, focused. We're trying to open more um, uh, hearts and minds to the idea of serving uh, in government um, and serving hopefully at the State Department. I've done that directly uh, myself. As senior officials have. Retention, though, is a critical piece because what we found is we get people through the door at C Street, but then they don't stay. And disproportionately... Uh, the people who don't stay tend to be from uh, groups that have been historically underrepresented at the department. So we need to understand why. And part of that was setting up a retention unit where we have been engaged in interviewing everyone who is uh, willing, who was was leaving the department or thinking about leaving the department, as well as doing statistical surveys. But the the in-person interviews are really important to try to better understand this. And I've just got the uh, initial results from the first... Um, uh, surveys and interviews that are very instructive and illuminating about uh, what it is we can do better to make sure we're retaining people. And then it's vital that uh, people be promoted, uh, that, that, that everyone in the department sees that they can aspire to hold the highest jobs in the department and opening that process up with more transparency, especially at the senior levels. That's something we've done too. Let me just say very quickly, one of the things I'm grateful to the Congress for is, for the first time, we have paid internships, as you know, at the State Department. That means that socioeconomically, we widen the aperture dramatically. The enthusiasm for those has been through the roof. And based on the budget, my hope and expectation is we will get over the next couple of years to having a 1,000 paid internships at the department, and that's making huge difference. We put in place new fellowships that are designed uh, to um, uh, attract, uh, again, underrepresented uh, populations in the department. We just named one after Colin Powell uh, that we put together last year. We have uh, another one that I think Will further diversify the core of our dip, of our diplomatic security service, which is vitally important. Anyway, it's a long way of saying there is a lot that is going on, uh, and it's something that I'm absolutely seized with. But I want to make sure that the last thing I'll say is the more we're able to institutionalize these um, initiatives so that they remain there long after, you know, I'm gone and others are gone, that's usually important too. So we're looking at ways to to do that effectively.
5: It's tremendous work. And when it comes to naming fellowships, after this hearing, you might want to name one after Ted Cruz. I'm sure that would um, go a long way in bipartisan unity and support for the State Department's programs. Thank you, Senator. That's good, wise advice from a Jersey boy.
0: I'm not going to follow on on that, uh, but I, uh, I, Mr. Secretary, you, you've been very gracious with your time. I just want to close out on a couple of questions, Please. and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll let you go what do you call a country that violates another country's airspace and territorial waters without provocations, Mm -hmm. drills in in another country's exclusive economic zone, that buys Russian military equipment in violation of U.S. law, that has more lawyers and journalists in jail than almost any other country, and jails its main political opponent right before elections, a country that seeks by force to block the rights of a EU country to explore its energy deposits off its outer continental shelf a country that not has only not has joined EU led sanctions against Russia but has exported about 800 million dollars worth of goods to Russia a country that continues airstrikes in Iraq and Syria including against US partners like the Syrian Democratic Forces that stops a critical enlargement of NATO, that continues uh, to occupy a EU country with 40,000 troops and in violation of UN Security Council resolutions, seeks to open up an area that has been frozen by the United Nations, that denies religious freedom to the religious leader of millions of citizens of Greek Orthodox faith, that converts a church into a mosque in violation of its UNESCO commitments, And that arrests and jails U.S. Embassy locally employed staff. What do you call such a country?
2: Um, I think I would call that uh, a challenging ally.
0: Well, uh, I call the country Turkey. (laughs) Uh, And the reality is I I, I don't believe that such a country, and I didn't continue, which I could have, uh, deserves to have F-16 sold to it. I mean... I don't know what messages we send in the world that you can do all of those things and yet you can get U.S. military assistance at the end of the day. So I know the aspiration we have for Turkey, but it is not the Turkey under President Erdogan. And so it seems to me there has to be a roadmap in which it says if you really want this, then you have to you know, deal with some of these issues. Because if we just give them the F-16s and all of this remains outstanding, well, I, I don't know what global message we send. In a similar light, in the past year, we've seen Azerbaijan invade Armenia, manufacture a food security crisis in nagorno karabakh with its ongoing blockade, continue rampant repression domestically, including with the unjustified detention of activists like Bakhtiyar Hajiv, In the past five years, we've seen Azerbaijan start a war that killed 6,500 people, forced almost 100,000 Karabakh Armenians from their homes. So I am concerned about providing assistance to the Aliyev regime, but it strikes me as particularly egregious that the administration would request $700,000 in international military education and training funds for Azerbaijan. So can you explain to the American people why we would want to provide military education and training to an aggressor state that attacks its neighbors and violates the rights of its citizens?
2: So, uh, Senator, I know we've had opportunity to discuss this before. Um, there are a few things here. First of all, when it comes to the um, uh, military assistance, and particularly to the, the infamous Section 901 waiver that uh, uh, that we engage in, uh, look, there's some very practical reasons for that. One is to actually strengthen, as you know, the interoperability between uh, their forces, ours, NATOs. They engage in peacekeeping. They have uh, a long border with Iran uh, that, uh, that needs defending. But also, to this, uh, to this point, we think there's real benefit to increasing uh, the uh, Western education, uh, maybe orientation, of, uh, of some of their officers. Uh, so that's important. But let me just step back for Well, I hope second. that
0: Western education isn't what, what they've learned to do, what they did in blockading these people, starting a conflict, 6,500 dead. That, that, I hope, is not Western education.
2: Just to step back for one second, because I do think this is an important moment and something that I, I think we should really uh, also pursue the conversation on. Um, I've been very engaged on uh, seeing what we can do to um, help Armenia and Azerbaijan come to uh, a peace agreement um, that um, normalizes the relationship between them uh, as well as deal with uh, obviously uh, the rights and protections uh, for um, uh, Armenian ethics in nagorno karabakh dealing with uh, border delimitation et cetera um, and I think there's an opportunity I don't want to exaggerate it but an opportunity actually um, to uh, bring a peace agreement to uh, to fruition I have uh, I had uh, Prime Minister Pashinyan and President Aliyev together in Munich at the security conference. Uh, I've had the foreign ministers here in Washington. Uh, I expect that they'll uh, come back. We've worked um, on, a, on a text, and this is not something that we're imposing on Armenia. We're answering uh, the uh, strong desire expressed by Armenia to see if we can help, um, uh, help them reach an agreement, which would end at least, um, uh, you know, in, in many ways, 30-plus years of, of conflict. It's challenging and it's fraught. At the same time, you're exactly right to point out the uh, real problems in the Lachin Corridor with the uh, ability of um, people, uh, private citizens, commercial traffic to flow to get uh, what's needed to uh, people in Nagorno-Karabakh. I'm pressing on Azerbaijan, uh, including as recently as this week, to reopen that corridor. So we're, we're working on that. But I do think that there is, um, uh, without exaggerating it, a moment of, of opportunity here that would profoundly be in the interests uh, of the people of of Armenia, as well as Azerbaijan. Well,
0: as we are aspiring to that, and that's a worthy aspiration, but I hope that we are committed to making sure that humanitarian assistance uh, reaches the Karabar Armenians in nagorno yes. Uh and, and I hope you use your good offices yes. uh, to make that happen. Uh, two last things. Um, your announcement of your determination related to war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ethiopia mm-hmm. was well welcomed, and I salute you for it. Uh, I, along with other senators, have been pushing for such a determination for two years. I agree with your position that justice... And accountability for the crimes committed during the course of the war are a fundamental element of a sustainable peace. State Department officials have indicated that human rights monitors will have full and unfettered access to Tigray in the wake of the November agreements. Uh, Will will you commit to update your determination periodically as the monitors gather more information?
2: Yes, we're tracking this, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, every step along the way and the uh, access for monitors is a vital part of this agreement.
0: Okay, that's great. And uh, will any update include a finding related to the International Commission of Human Rights Experts on Ethiopia's report from September of last year that, quote, the denial and obstruction of humanitarian access to Tigray region by the federal government and allied regional state governments was committed for the purpose of depriving the Tigrayan population of objects indispensable for its survival, including food?
2: Well, I actually think that's, that's reflected in our uh, determination. If you look uh, at the determination that we made, there are a number of different elements that apply. Some do not apply to all of the actors in this. And one of the things that uh, is clear in the determination that we made was that, in effect, trying to cut off the population of Tigray from humanitarian uh, access uh, constituted a, uh, a, a serious offense that we noted in our, in our determination.
0: All right. Well, we look forward to that. I, I hope we will, we will commit to supporting the extension of the mandate of the International Commission of Human Rights Experts on Ethiopia mm-hmm. as, as part of our effort. Lastly, uh, I want to echo uh, Senator Booker's. As you know, I've had a nearly 30-year journey on diversity with the State Department. It's been, most of the time, rather lonely, most of the time unsuccessful, uh, and so I appreciate the answer uh, that you gave him. And I just hope that as we pursue that diversity, that is diversity is as broad as possible, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, what we're doing in the budget, which uh, seeks the recruitment and retention of an additional 164 foreign service and 351 serv- mm-hmm. civil service personnel, is going to have these DEIA initiatives you know, penetrating yeah. that effort as well is that is that what your expectation?
2: Yes, and in fact, uh, one, we made changes to the foreign service exam uh, to make sure that uh, it was uh, uh, unintentionally, but uh, as a as a practical matter, um, actually um, uh, being more of a barrier to diversification uh, than it should be. We've also, uh, among other things, made um, working for uh, advancing DEIA. Uh, one of the criteria for promotion in the Department.
0: Okay. Well, I look forward to holding a hearing later this year with the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of the Department, uh, which was in and of itself a good step. But of course, all of that only uh, matters if we if we see change in numbers, which I appreciate from your answer, Senator Booker, you are working on trying to make a reality. So uh, Senator Risch had to leave, but he asked me on behalf of both of us to thank you. You've been very gracious with your time, very thorough in your answers. Um, and um, this hearing uh, record will remain open to the close of business uh, on Wednesday, March the 29th. If there are questions for the record, please submit it no later than then. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.